Rundown is a show where four Catholic men opine on current affairs of the world, on matters of faith, culture, and politics. It's unfiltered, it's daring, and it's certainly unapologetic. The Rundown is a weekly news show. But it's more than that. It's a family of like-minded Catholics who are preparing for the coming chastisement. You cover church news, politics, and current events around the world, linking them in a way no one else does, giving you the perspective no one else can. The Rundown is not meant for children because it informs and prepares parents, young adults, seminarians, even priests watch The Rundown to know about the most pressing and evolving threats to the Catholic faith today. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com It is the 106th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme, following up last week's armistice an, uh, anniversary, the end of World War I. So we have a special uh, segment dedicated to World War I and the fallen there. We have, uh, you know, Trump is back on the menu. We have uh, Pelosi goes bye-bye. FTX collapse and so much more. This is your most watched, least watched. Uh, I've lost track of what the slogan is. Catholic Disinfo Hour, and we're ready to get started. Here we go. We're just to fight in World War One. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Back then, you know, we called it the Great War. <laughs> it really was. Well, anyway, the guy they wanted backed out, and now they want me. I start shooting today. Congratulations! Wait, 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 you can't start today. Today's the rehearsal dinner. Oh, no, I'll be done by then. Oh, well, then way to go, you big movie star. Uh, All right, I'll see you guys over there. I'm off to fight the Nazis. Oh, wait, Joey, we fought the Nazis in World War II, not World War I. Whoa, okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, who who was in World War I? Go ahead. Who did we fight in World War One? Mexico? Yes, very good. 1914. The great powers of Europe are divided into two rival alliances. The Triple Entente. France, Britain and Russia. United by fear and suspicion of Germany, Europe's new strongest power. And the Triple Alliance. Germany, which fears encirclement by its rivals, Austro-Hungary, clinging on to a fragile empire, and Italy, seeking gains at French expense. The spark comes on the 28th of June, in the city of Sarajevo. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, is assassinated by a 19-year-old Slav nationalist named Gavrilo Princip. Austro-Hungary accuses its Balkan rival Serbia of having aided the assassin and sends an ultimatum demanding humiliating concessions. Serbia rejects the ultimatum and Austro-Hungary declares war. Within hours, Austrian forces are shelling Belgrade. The Russian Tsar, Nicholas II, feels honor bound to defend Serbia, a fellow Slav nation and orders the Russian army to mobilize. German Emperor Wilhelm II has promised his support to Austro-Hungary. He and his generals see conflict with Russia as inevitable, 
and the sooner the better, as Russian strength grows year on year. Russian mobilization is used to justify German mobilization, followed by a declaration of war on Russia. Germany knows war with Russia means war with Russia's ally, France. It has developed the Schlieffen plan to meet this threat of a war on two fronts. First, its armies will advance rapidly through neutral Belgium to encircle and destroy French armies near Paris and win a quick victory. Then its forces can move east to deal with Russia, whose huge army will take much longer to mobilize. And so Germany declares war on France. Six million men are now marching to war across Europe. Italy, however, remains neutral. The terms of the Triple Alliance don't bind it to join an offensive war. The United States also declares its neutrality. President Wilson and the American public have no desire to get entangled in Europe's war. Britain is France's ally, but at first it's not clear if it will join the war against Germany. But when German troops invade Belgium, whose neutrality Britain has guaranteed, an ultimatum is sent from London to Berlin, demanding they withdraw. It's ignored, and Britain declares war. War started because of the vile Hun and his villainous empire building. George, the British Empire at present covers a quarter of the globe, while the German Empire consists of a small sausage factory in Tanganyika. <laughs> I hardly think that we can be entirely absolved from blame on the imperialistic front. Uh, oh, no. No, sir. Absolutely not. Man's a bicycle. <laughs> I heard that it started when a bloke called Archie Duke shot an ostrich because he was hungry. <laughs> I think you mean it started when the Archduke of Austro-Hungary got shot. <laughs> no, there was definitely an ostrich involved. <laughs> well, possibly. But the real reason for the whole thing was that it was just too much effort not to have a war. My gum, this is interesting. I always loved history. A battle of Hastings, Henry VIII and his six knives, all that. <laughs> you see, Baldrick, in order to prevent war in Europe, two super blocks developed. Us, the French and the Russians on one side, and the Germans and Austro-Hungary on the other. The idea was to have two vast opposing armies, each acting as the other's deterrent. That way, there could never be a war. But this is a sort of a war, isn't it, sir? Yes, that's right. You see, there was a tiny flaw in the plan. What was that, sir? It was bollocks. <laughs> so the poor old ostrich died for nothing. The other matter, sir, the secret matter. Ah, yes, the special mission. At ease, Bergeron. Now, what I'm about to tell you is absolutely tip-top secret. Is that clear? It is, sir. Now, I've compiled a list of those with security clearance. Have you got it, darling? Yes, sir. Read it, please. It's top security, sir. I think that's all the captain needs to know. George Schutzlitz, hear the list in full. Very well, sir. List of personnel cleared for Mission Gainsborough, as dictated by General C.H. Melchett. You and me, darling, obviously. <laughs> Field Marshal Haig, Field Marshal Haig's wife, all Field Marshal Haig's wife's friends, their families, their family servants, their family servants' tennis partners, and some chap I bumped into in the mess the other day called Bernard. So, 
It's maximum security, is that clear? <laughs> Quite clear, sir. Only myself and the rest of the English-speaking world is to know. <laughs> Good man. Now, Field Marshal Haig has formulated a brilliant new tactical plan to ensure final victory in the field. Ah. Would this brilliant plan involve us climbing out of our trenches and walking very slowly towards the enemy, sir? <laughs> How could you possibly know that, Blackadder? It's classified information. <laughs> it's the same plan that we used last time, and the 17 times before that. Exactly! And that is what is so brilliant about it. It will catch the watchful Hun totally off guard. Doing precisely what we've done 18 times before is exactly the last thing they'll expect us to do this time. <laughs> thought he was buying a present, and Spadger and I had already got the other one. Well, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> I, I think we'd better get the cover now, oh, sir, and I'll thank you probably later on. Corporal Sturridge got this for you as well, sir. He didn't know about the others, sir. It's Swiss. Oh, well, now that is Corporal Sturridge. Good man. And there's a card, sir, from all of us. Sorry about the blood, sir. Thank you all. Squad. You shouldn't have said that, sir. You've hurt his feelings now. Don't mind me, Splash. Toft is all the same. One minute's all please and thank you. The next, I'll 
kick you in the teeth. Yeah. Oh, let's not give him the cake. I don't want any cake. Look, Blackett cooked especially for you, you bastard. Yeah, he saved his rations for six weeks, sir. Sorry, I don't mean to be ungrateful. I'll be all right. Blackett! Blackett! Look at him. He worked on that cake like no one else I've ever known. Some nights it was so cold we could hardly move, but Black would be out there slicing the lemons, mixing the sugar and the almonds. I mean, you tried trying to get butter to melt at 15 degrees below zero. There's love in that cake. This man's love, and this man's care, and this... Oh, my... You bastard. All right. We will eat the cake. They're right, it's... It's too good a cake not to eat. Get the plates and knives, Walters. Yes, sir. How many plates? Six. Ah. Uh, yeah. No, better make it five. Tablecloth, sir? Yes, get the tablecloth. Ah. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll get the tablecloth. And you better get the table hot. And we're back, although apparently <laughs> I got Are taken we? down. Uh, this is all free on YouTube, so I don't know why exactly we ran afoul. Wow. But we're still on Twitter now, right? We're still we are? We're on, on Twitter, Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're recording for the podcast as well. Good, good, good. Okay, so I guess we will continue, and I will see what I can do in the back end on the YouTube side of it. Um, let's see. So... Welcome back, everyone. The Fab Four reassemble with special guest Kailish. Kailish, uh, thank you for joining us. I thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so, to begin with, World War One. The uh, the anniversary is last week. We uh, didn't make a mention of it. However, the uh, the anniversary of the Battle of the Somme is today, and so the. Um, you know, the most horrific battle in the entirety of the war, really. Uh, Tolkien was there at the Battle of the Somme. So many lives lost during World War One. So I'm going to uh, move over to... Um, actually, Kyle Ash, you're a guest. We're going to go to you first. You know, with... Um, to you, anyway, what's the legacy of World War One and uh, all of the death, the carnage, the alliances? What what died there? What, uh, you know, what legacy did it leave for the rest of us? Wow, what an incredible question to ask me first. You know, it's interesting <laughs> having a, a background from India, which is non-Western. It is very interesting to study some of these wars and how much carnage there was. Uh, but there were actually Indian troops in the north of Africa, I think, in World War One and Two, that fought for the British side. So it's crazy that it truly was a world war. That's what I think about, that the the terrain of fighting was so huge in both World War One and Two. So huge in both World War One and Two. Sorry for the technical and, difficulties. I'm also working under the hood. Okay. 
Okay, I was going to ask, question. do you want me to go into an in-depth analysis of Otto, Otto von Bismarck and all the f different heads of states? Because I can't, unfortunately. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, we don't need to. You know, we're looking for the reactions. What you know is, I mean, you know, if I wanted to get the history thing, we'd get, you know, a bunch of World War I scholars and get in-depth in every little possible detail that could possibly be. Just looking kind of the reaction, the feeling of it, um, let's go over to Mike. World War I, it's the end of monarchies, <clears throat> it's the end, at least, a, a fun, you know, having a, a role in, in making formal decisions. It's the end of so many things. What do you see in the end of World War I? Uh, well, World War I uh, can only be described as the suicide of Europe. Uh, it was the end of the old order. It was the proliferation of uh, nationalism, but not nationalism rightly understood as in, you know, uh, a love for the fatherland, but nationalism under, as understood by, uh, you know, things of a, of a political nature and particularly of a Republican nature. World War I was the, was the culmination of industrialism. Um, it, it, it began to, to be the undoing of um, imperialism and it was really kind of the first time in the history of the world that that wokeness came to be. And the entire world was held hostage at the end by U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, one of the worst men to ever walk the planet, uh, because he insisted that the war could not end, even though it was effectively tactically over um, until the dissolution of the empire was complete. So it was the end of monarchy. It was, it was uh, the end of national sort of pride and more of a globalist uh, sort of agenda. And, and um, yeah, it was the suicide of Western culture. Without a doubt. And in fact, we just see who engineered the war the war's engineering actually takes place a lot earlier, even earlier than the assassin, assassination of the Archduke, uh, the ostrich, as Baldrick put it, from uh, Blackadder. Um, before that, you have in England, the plan is already underway, where in England in, in uh, 1891 is, is an ally of Germany, for the most part. Uh, there's, there's a lot of interconnection there. The, the royal family is German. Right? They haven't rebranded as Windsor yet. The, the aristocracy, there's intermarriage with German families. There's a lot of links going to Germany. And it was a, a click of British business. And all this stuff is documented and documentable, starting with Cecil Rhodes down to his successor, Lord Milner, who are all private men working in the government, in the civil service. They're not monarchs. They're not even elected most of the time. And they are working with their assets and their money. Cecil Rhodes, you know, his money was uncountable because right, he ran the diamond mines in uh, what was formerly called Rhodesia. And so you know, all these guys put their wealth to switch British public opinion, British policy away from, uh, you know, at least goodwill toward Germany because of the danger of well, what happens if the, the Prussian Empire becomes the greatest you know, thing in the block. So squash completely, um, you know, these notions that all this war it just happened. There were people who happened to be bankers, actually, 
Rhodes, Milner, people like that, heavily connected with all the major banking houses, even JP Morgan over in the States. And they put a lot of the machinery in place in the background that leads to the eventual conflict when, when you get down to it. Uh, James, how do, how do you see the, the financial side as well as the, the dignity of everything that died there? Uh, in, in many respects, the uh, World War One, known as the Great War, uh, was certainly an overthrow of all the systems uh, in, in readiness for what uh, the, 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 the beginnings of the New World Order uh, was trying to, to shape. Um, we have uh, the old order being overturned and then a new order being established. And of course, we've all talked about how this greatly affected uh, the monarchical systems around the world and how uh, this was frustrating the, uh, the future for certain uh, monarchies in play. And of course, uh, England at that, that time already was under a constitutional monarchy, and so they didn't have much to, to lose per se. Uh, but the rest of the world was starting to uh, suffer and then uh, th the world war was, in a sense, uh, the icing on the cake, which would help to disrupt the world financial systems at large, and then to implement a new system uh, under the uh, central banks um, of the world. And of course, we now arrive at that era of the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank. Precisely. And, and well, that, that could take over the entire show if we wanted to go into the Federal Reserve. That could take over the entire show if we wanted to go in the Federal Reserve. Brother, real quick, Hilaire Belloc in his book Path to Rome, he describes a Europe as it was 1911 before all the carnage and the destruction takes place. He describes the faith of the people, the, you know, the religion of the people. What's the effect on the church as, as best as you can see it um, following World War One? Um, oh, I mean, it was, it was kind of a, uh, well, well, first a little bit about world war one and, and kind of the, the rise of the enlightenment of liberalism in particular, because I think that's one of the greatest of, is effects in the church is that there's, it seemed to be such a snowball liberalism, uh, especially in, in society that it became something so big that not even the church could seem, could seem to put a pause to it just to stop it. Um, but I mean, liberalism, I mean, even back to, to the Civil War, for instance, the, the invention and the introduction of the Gatling gun, different military tactics. Um, Major Mike could probably speak more about this up too. Is uh, the weaponry, the technology, and the weaponry was advancing so quickly that uh, you were fighting wars with old tactics, and so you you had uh, people marching very close together. One bomb drops, and he kills like ten of them, as opposed to uh, World War Two. You get used to that with grenades that people would march farther apart because if if one grenade drops, it doesn't kill ten people and kills maybe two or three um, rather than ten, and so. Especially with with uh, World War One, the invention of like mustard gas, um, technology was used for a, a, a mass destruction of life, and this is important because Sir Francis Bacon, when he was an Englishman in the 15 1600s, uh, taught that we can use technology to liberate man, to make man free, free to do whatever he wants and, and to live as he wills. And so you take that idea, which, which is something that uh, the progressives today strongly believe in technology such as contraception to, to uh, help us escape from the natural consequences, to be free, to be liberated from nature, so to speak. 
um, to, to live according to our will however we want so that we don't have to suppress our passions. To use technology towards this end, in World War I, um, you see the introduction of new technologies, mustard gas, all that kind of stuff, that destroys millions of lives. And so it's the complete opposite of what um, the goal of liberalism, the goal of technology was was used for. So how does this affect the church? I mean, Pope, Pope Benedict XV said, uh, well, first of all, the 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 treaty that was uh, the Treaty of Versailles, I think it was called, um, that was made was was so repressive on Germany and blamed Germany for everything that he himself said that if, if uh, we don't fix this treaty, then within 20 years we're going to see another world war. And he was exactly right. Um, and we saw the same same consequences from the same idea of technology of using technology to well create a, a, a better humanity. I mean, uh, everything from eugenics to to, every, to I mean destruction of life. It was uh, to see that as, as, as a necessary means um, to a better humanity, a, b a better end is is really it, sh it should have been the destruction of liberalism. But of course, we're, we're still fighting the same ideologies. And so it seemed more and more that the, the church lost his voice within all of this era, that the church wasn't be, wasn't able to get to the to the public, wasn't, wasn't able to get to um, the rulers to say, hey, we need we need to stop this. We need to um, we need we need to readopt the philosophical anthropology, the understanding of what it means to be human, that the church has always presented throughout Christendom and, and, and quit this new uh, understanding of, of human nature was the state of nature that Hobbes and Locke promoted. Right. And actually, you bring up an interesting point. Let, let's kind of make a comparison if we can. We'll go around uh, real quick, like a, a minute, two minutes, because it's not a, a major point. But let's compare the church, you know, when the, when the big rumblings of war, everyone's arming at a rapid rate through, you know, 1911 through 1914. And Pius X, St. Pius X, is, is praying for peace, praying for peace in Europe, offering his life to avert a war. It's not enough. Benedict XV is appealing for peace. Blessed Carl, we'll talk about him in a minute. He's appealing for peace. And then uh, Wilson, that wonderful, enlightened man, said, well, I'm not talking to you. You're not elected. No peace. Um, you see these kind of things, you know, back then, the church, but the church was in a far different position. Now let's look at the church today that at the potential outbreak of World War III. And we'll talk about that later tonight as well. You have uh, so many things going on, so many flashpoints uh, between, you know, in, in Eurasia and now Eastern Europe and in, in, in other places. And if the church called for peace, would anyone, you know, would it be less effective or more effective than in 1914, Kailash. Yeah, I mean, it didn't work in 1914. I would think that the church's voice is even weaker today than it was a hundred years ago. Um, and and it's exactly right. The the people in the government who who ran these nation states after centuries of the the Enlightenment and that ideology, they began to see themselves perhaps equal to the authority of the church and then eventually superseding it. And the World War I, they didn't respect what the church had to say. And I, I feel like it's natural that we only, we talk about World War I as it connects to World War II. And certainly Nazi Germany uh, b believed that it could create an institution greater than the Catholic church. And, you know, I don't think it would be any different today with whatever belligerence would be in a war, that they would look at the church and the the voice of God on earth as something inferior to them, for sure. And and that's a nation state that is divorced from uh, reality, but a nation state which believes that the laws it makes can supersede the laws of God. 
uh, Mike and James. I just want to point out that it may not be well known. The reserve currency of the world wasn't always the U.S. dollar, and prior to World War One, it was actually the one of the main reserve currencies of the world was was the currency of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And post World War One, the empire was dissolved and it didn't exist anymore. And so, you know, it's it's difficult to look at uh, World War One outside of a context of monetary policy and central banking. And banking has been at the heart of so much of world history, uh, really from you know the Napoleonic Wars and onward, and perhaps even before that. Um, but it's presumed in the United States today that the dollar will be the petrodollar of tomorrow. But within one year, you, you go from the reserve currency of the world to, to being uh, disaggregated into a bunch of republics and, and your currency is gone and therefore your, your, your financial power is gone. And I, I can't help but wonder when we're, you know, $500 trillion in, in unfunded liabilities in this country, uh, the only thing that is keeping us afloat as a financial power uh, is the fact that other people have faith and trust in our dollar, even if the rundown viewers don't. And so we could, if you're asking about a comparison between World Wars One and Three, um, at the end of Three, there won't be a United States dollar. There won't be a green back because the green is backed by nothing. And so we are about to find out, look, if you're a farmer in central Kansas, this matters to you. You don't have to be a financier on Wall Street for this to matter. To matter, This will absolutely affect everything, every aspect of all of our lives. Um, so I wanted to make that point. And I think there was there was another point too, but if we come back well, to it. Well, the comparison of the influence of the church in World War One and is it greater or less today? The ability of, of the Church of Jesus Christ to be a force for peace against all this. Yeah, I mean, I think Kailash hit the nail on the head. The, the, the voice of the church has never been weaker uh, than it is now, uh, more easily disregarded um, by the right and the left, frankly. If, if Francis were to get out um, on an airplane or, uh, or Benedict XVI, uh, I'm not sure which one to listen to, but, but, but su supposing a man in white in Rome got up and, and said that we need to oppose Ukraine or oppose Russia or whatever it is, I don't think anybody would listen to him on the right or the left. They're totally disregarded. James? Uh, what Mike said. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. What, what's, See, what, what's, this, this is exactly what, though. Oh, go ahead, James. No, I, I was just going to ask uh, Ryan to repeat that question since uh, Mike had a long-winded answer. <laughs> so, the uh, so in World War I, the church you know, spoke out for peace, Pius X, Benedict XV. Uh, yes. She wasn't heeded. If the church spoke out today, sure. what, you know, calling for peace, would, would she be heeded in any quarter? Well, you know, I mean, right right now, such a thing is happening. As a matter of fact, uh, some some talks are being purported in the news to to be happening under Francis. I, I forget which. Uh, I, I believe it's uh, Putin and somebody else 
Uh, if you, any, anybody there knows who it is, I, I don't recall, but the news was uh, spread last week or so that such a talk was in the works, you know, was, was happening. Uh, and I, I recall when I was hearing this sort of uh, laughing inside and going, who, who in their right mind would want to listen to a man who doesn't know how to govern his own church? Um, and that's the state of things right now is um, there's a man claiming to be Pope, but yet he cannot govern his own church and his his uh, his view or his voice on these issues after uh, the the whole debacle with uh, or debacle, some would say, with the uh, the jab mandate uh, forced on uh, you know the Catholics' adherence. You know this is not a time for him to be uh, putting his feet in the water, uh, therefore muddying uh, people's opinion more of the church. You know, this is not really about Francis anymore. It's about the church. And so, um, I, I, you know, anything he does now will will impact the church negatively. Um, and I don't think he's equipped to be that person, be that voice of reason, which uh, some would argue that's why or that you know, the, the uh, that's why Archduke Ferdinand was, was murdered. Perhaps he was seeking too much of, uh, you know, real peace. And it, it's happened throughout history. People who tend to be seeking real peace are usually the ones who end up being disappeared. That particular flashpoint in Serbia is interesting, too, because the Serbs didn't have a port. They were surrounded by Croatia and blocked from the sea. And it's one of the things they were asking for. And, you know, the the, uh, you know, Franz Ferdinand wanted to give them the port. He was actually, you know, saying the best way to to get peaceful relations with Serbia is to help them prosper economically. And that's, you know, part of his goodwill tour was, you know, to foster that. And, and he was kind of the, the black sheep. Isn't it and funny? You're, you're, see that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ryan. Isn't it funny that on the tour that was supposed to be a healing tour, a uh, restorative tour uh, uh, for, for the people of Serbia, this turned out to be his own very demise. You know, the irony so thick. Brother, there. Yeah. yeah, brother, real quick, um, you know, your view of the church in World War One versus the church now, uh, what are the, you know, what, if any, effect could it have for peace? Well, I'd like to uh, simply point out that both World War One and World War Two kind of led the church to to realize it needed something of a, a giornamento, so to speak. Uh, of of helping itself reflect on the fact that it it didn't have a strong enough voice to um, to oppose and to to deal with world leaders diplomatically to avoid such carnage. Um, and what uh, it, it's been said that it's one of the reasons why even the Second Vatican Council was called it was precisely to deal with this, um, which it makes it even more interesting why they didn't deal with the even more pressing um, concern at the time, which was communism. Um, of course, John the Twenty Third wanted wanted particular uh, prelates at the at at the council, and uh, communist Russia said they can't go if if uh, uh, if you if you bash communism, if you, if you condemn communism. So there was some politicking even there, also politique. But um, Vatican II was supposed to do that. It was supposed to address how is how is the church supposed to dialogue? How is the church supposed to dialogue with the world, so to speak? How is the church supposed to regain its voice, its, its prominent voice that it had always had? Um, that it had apparently within the last century had completely and totally lost. Um, obviously, it went it went about um, that by just just caving into the to what the world wanted wanted the church to believe, 
you know, changing some of its its uh, positions on 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 things, which was the wrong thing to do. Um, but that's what we're suffering right now is 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 the Vatican II thought that oh, if we cave in on certain ideas, then uh, the world will listen to us again. The world will see, hey, we're not all that bad. Hey, we're good guys. Hey, we're worth talking to. But it's it's been the exact opposite. Now, the, since since Vatican II uh, caved in. They, they think they control everything. And in one sense, they do now control the church in the sense that you can't criticize um, President Biden, so to speak, without being anti-Pope Francis. I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality. So let's shift gears a little bit here. The leaders of World War I, we look at, you know, King George V, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, Tsar Nicholas II, all non-Catholics, Clemenceau, the premier in France, atheist, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, I, I can't remember what specific kind of, it, it was a type of Protestant that was, uh, that it didn't believe in Christ's divinity, uh, among other things. I think the only divinity Wilson believed in was his own, <laughs> to put it, you know, politely. In, 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 the, in the mix of all these people, and then of course the Turkish Sultan, obvious. But then you have Blessed Carl. Here is his own voice. Ich war an allen Fronten, bei allen Gruppen unter glorreichen Armee. Ich sah alle Nationalitäten der weiten Monarchie in vollster Eintracht einem großen Ziele entgegengehen, einem glorreichen Frieden. In den Augen aller Soldaten las man Kampfesfreudigkeit und Siegeszuversicht. Ausdrücke der großen Liebe zu unserem Angebetet allerhöchsten Kriegsherrn und eines unbegrenzten Gottvertrauens hörte man aus dem Munde jedes dieser Helden. Bewundernswert sind auch die Helden des Hinterlandes, die stillen Dulder, die durch den Krieg entweder ihr Liebstes verloren haben oder in beständiger Angst und Sorge um ihre Verwandten leben. Der großen Zeit würdig ist die Kriegsfürsorge, wo jeder, der nicht selbst mit dem Schwert in der Hand das Vaterland verteidigen kann, durch unendliche Wohltat allen braven Kriegern ihre schweren Leiden zu erleichtern bestrebt ist. Viribus unitis. Blessed well, Karl is the one Catholic you know, ruler during the period, and I mean, he wasn't the emperor at the start of it, and and he, he labors as much as he can to, to work for a peaceful end in the war. Uh, Ludendorff, who may, mostly was running things during this period in German, in Prussia, wasn't listening, didn't care. Uh, Tsar Nicholas was no longer in position to end the war, really. Um, Wilson wouldn't talk to him because he wasn't elected. And, and, and the British and the French weren't interested in talking to him. But, you know, here's a guy not expected to inherit the throne, actually, uh, through a series of accidents and events. Uh, his father was not morally upright, and uh, his mother took him to mass, and he became very pious and very devout. So let, let's let's move around the horn to get reactions on uh, Blessed Carl, uh, for as much as you know about him and his impression on you in, in during this conflict. Uh, Kailash, we'll start. We'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. Don't don't know much about him, but it is very interesting that there are so many saints who are monarchs, and it. It is, it's a great thing to remember leaders who actually did the will of God and who are remembered by the church. And it is really sad that, there, you know, you can't really think of an elected leader who did that. And there really is something about the kingdom of heaven 
being reflected in a monarchy on earth and the great saints who were who inherited the throne but behaved in a way that was virtuous and upright and i hope very much for an elected leader one day to actually fulfill those catholic obligations but it is a it's a very interesting study that um it's very it's hard in a democracy or in a in a vote to have that Okay, so the stream was interrupted probably for the Blessed Carl video, which again is freely available on YouTube. Uh, I, I don't quite understand why we're striking some nerve with Mama Susan somewhere, but um, anyway. Uh, I'm sure it's not a Susan. I'm, I'm positive that it's a Karen. <laughs> well, because <laughs> Susan, uh, what's her name, who runs YouTube is, is who I'm referring to. But um, <laughs> anyway, Mike, let's move to you. Uh, you've worked to, to promote Blessed Carl's cult in this country. Mm-hmm. What is Car- uh, Blessed Carl's role in the in the conflict? What, what does that say to you as a military man? He he actually was in, you know, on the ground with the troops, whereas so many leaders are not. Uh, of course, our Congress critters, they'll vote a war and then they'll send men off to fight it. And then they'll make sure their family not only doesn't serve, but financially benefits from it um, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, you're a serviceman. What does Blessed Carl mean to you? Well, where should we start? I mean, Blessed Carl, as you pointed out, Ryan, prolifically visited the front lines. He was no stranger to battle, no stranger to danger. Uh, He was a military man himself, served in the cavalry. Um, As you said, he was born ninth in line to the crown. Low expectations on you when you're that far removed from the crown, but through a suicide and an unlawful marriage and then an assassination he was he was moved right along it was prophesied by either a nun or or pope pius x or both uh that he would actually become emperor i think pope pius x did in fact tell him uh when he was a child that he would become emperor um but what does he mean to us well he he mean yeah (laughs) you do look uncomfortable james um (laughs) Look, I mean, I think, uh, I think, I think, blessed Carl von Habsburg represents the link to the old world, the old way of doing things. He, more than anyone in the conflict, was a man who stood for traditional values, for tradition, and he was, he was, un, he was brought into the war, really against his will. The Austro-Hungarians had no choice. They had to ally with the Germans because they shared so much of a front with the Germans. Um, the, the sort of warmongering amongst the Prussians drug them along. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm was taken advantage of by a bunch of you know sort of nationalists, uh, pan-German uh, philosophy that that continued on even after the end of World War One, but he was somebody who sued for peace constantly, sued for peace, and he would do so in overt and covert ways. And it's easy for us to forget that a lot of these noble families and royal families were interrelated with each other. So he, as a Habsburg, was married to um, to a Bourbon. And so uh, his wife actually had not only 
relatives in France who were top level, but also in England. And so Carl was able to communicate to the Entente uh, via his distant relatives and his in-law families to try to sue for peace. He was betrayed multiple times within his administration and by the Italians. Um, there were there were phantom deals on the table. And look, in, in a way, all of us can relate to Blessed Carl in some way. All of us have, in the eyes of the world, failed in some endeavor, but in the eyes of God, we have succeeded. All of us have been betrayed by people who should not have um, should not have done that. All of us have had phantom peace deals placed on the table that we have have attempted to accept, only for those to end up being a ruse. Um, and you know, ultimately, blessed Carl von Habsburg died poor and penniless in Madeira, in exile. But the one thing he never did was abdicate. He never took off the crown. And he never bowed to the modernist powers that were taking over. And in all of his suffering, and this I think is why he's so saintly and so comparable to Christ, in his suffering, he said, I'm suffering for my people. And that someday that they will wake up and that they will realize what they have done and you know, forgive them for they know not what they have done. He was a daily communicant, especially in his last days uh, when he died from probably pneumonia, in a musty old house, penniless. And to this day, uh, according to statute, the Habsburgs have been uh, disinherited uh, from their patrimony and their lands and their holdings. Uh, and, uh, and the family um, still cannot pursue a political office in Austria. Uh, nor have any of those lands been uh, been given back. You know, you look at the seizure of the church property by Henry VIII, and um, and the massive transfer of wealth to from the Catholic Church in that time, and you can't help but wonder if you know you know draw the comparison between that as well every time. Uh, a Catholic leader is, or or the or the faith is under attack. There's always a com- a component that involves monetary policy, financial policy, real estate holdings, uh, precious metals, whatever it is. And so, yeah, I mean, in a in a way, he is our last link. And I, just one final comment on World War One, just in general, and we, we're spending an hour on it, um, I guess, but. World War One is so otherworldly to us. We have no connection to it anymore. The last World War II veterans are 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 dying now. And and so it almost seems like science fiction. And I the friends clip you play, I thought that was really funny, Ryan. Nobody knows who fought in World War One or for what reasons. And yet the reasons are so clear and, and understandable as you read history and you start to understand it, and you realize that the real villains of World War One. I'm not talking about the heroes on the battlefield. You fight for the guy to your right and to your left. So I'm not condemning any army. Um, and if we were alive in the United States back then, we would have been on the battlefield and we would have done what we could to keep our brothers and sisters and, well, there are no sisters, uh, just brothers 
uh, alive in the trenches, right? So I'm not saying that, but on a strategic national policy level, we were wrong. The United States was on the wrong side of World War One, um, and the Lusitania, you know, was a was a hoax. It was exactly, I mean, it was a false flag, um, and that was engineered by J.P. Morgan himself. So the connection to the banksters and uh, to the tribe that runs the world, uh, to as Yi would say, it it can't be overlooked. It can't be overstated. Um, and, and unfortunately those people who choose winners and losers and then write the history books about it, they didn't choose Carl. <clears throat> Certainly not. James, our connection to world war one, nobody knows who, you know, who we fought. It seems to me too, that in world war one people look at, you know, because the, the press demonized the Germans and I'll have more to say about that in a little bit. The, the there tends to be the, this. I don't know, a habit of saying, oh, well, you know, they're like the proto-Nazis. They were already, you know, just to see everything in the in the vision of World War II. Were the, were the Prussians that bad? No, I mean, not at all. You're talking about uh, the balancing of power or the alliances that were working together to keep uh, their own factions um um you know what's the word i'm looking for here uh you know in, in in play you know you you have a group that was basically aligned itself uh i, I mean I, I guess they even had uh a military uh uh inter there, there was a some sort of treaty or something that where that had their armies working together so by nature of what was going on they they had to band together in order to stand against the front that was headed to destroy uh, the the old world, and that's what was being fought fought for, or to, at least to defend uh, at that time. Um, you know, I, I I really think it's interesting how we're a uh, hundred years later, we're starting to we're still piecing together a lot of things that that happened, and people are starting to question the general narrative that has been taught to us for so many years. You know, uh, especially now with the eyes in which we're looking at the present uh, conflict, how easy it is to get swayed by the general narrative. You know, but right now I think things are happening so uh, so quickly that it's it's uh, people are not w willing to jump and to take sides right away. They really want to kind of see things uh, play out. You know, and back then it wasn't so easy. To do so, you just all you had to do was pick up a New York Times uh, newspaper, and then you're being told what you have to believe. You know, so now things are a little bit different, and we can weigh things uh, with more time. Time is on our side now, you know, because we have uh, various uh, uh, tools at our disposal to try at least to, to get a different narrative. What's being foisted at us. Mm -hmm. And uh, people in the middle of events too, uh, Belloc, Chesterton, they they engaged in the war propaganda as well for for the uh, the British government. I mean, I'm Belloc, glad you pointed that out. I'm glad you said that yeah, because yeah. I love Hilaire. I love both of them. He's but, my favorite author. Yeah. Really, he's so good. And yet here he is, a British uh, World War One propagandist. Let me put it this way: I can understand Belloc more than I can understand Chesterton. Belloc sure, sure. was, you know, he was making money off the war for the first time in his life. He was making decent money writing a land in war 
and uh, in other magazines. He was a statesman. Yeah. yeah. And, being a statesman. and he hated, oh, yeah. he was against Germany, just German culture in general. He saw that as, as bad and French culture as good because he's the son of a French father and an Irish mother. And he looked at himself for a very long time as a Frenchman, even though his sister testified that, well, we, we all spoke French fluently, but nobody would have mistaken us for French children. And at some point, Belloc comes to that conclusion that he's not a, a Frenchman with an Irish mother. He's a British subject with a, a French father. And that's what eventually he comes to that conclusion. And once yeah. he does, you know, he starts to question the French Revolution, which he formally divinized. And so he, he comes out of that. You see that, especially in Cruz of the Nona and other places where he really questions what he used to believe. But at the same time, back Chesterton is the one that makes less sense. And he just get, and he just kind of goes right into it. You know, they, Lloyd George pulls him in and says, you know, we need you to, to, to help advance the government's message. And he writes Butchery of Berlin, which is a total propaganda book just with information he was given. Did he believe it? Was he sincere? I have a hard time seeing Chesterton didn't not, I mean, doing something he didn't believe in. But then again, I don't know. It, but those are the two things. I just don't understand it. Yeah, um, I mean, but but let's be honest, though. Chester Belloc is not wrong in condemning German culture. It is the worst society to ever exist. There's nothing good that has ever come out of Germany from their philosophy to their theology to to their politics to their language. To, <laughs> the Teutonic, the, the, the there's something hey, in the Teutonic Leave the yodel, leave the yodel the alone. And the beer. Come these on. People, these people need to be wiped out. I'm sorry. Anyway. Well, then at least take the, the sausage and the beer as the spoils, please. I, I, can, I, can, I can live with Italian sausage and bourbon. So. <laughs> yeah, Italian sausage is American. Yeah. Uh, Spoken like a true fascist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, although we did have some schnitzel the other day. Yeah. It was it was really fine schnitzel that we it had was. <laughs> in the RTF house. Oh, yeah, I think Brother Martin had a taste of it, too. Oh, it was it was sent to somebody else, but I took a piece. Brother uh, Martin, real quick, uh, Blessed Carl, you know, the, the, the saint in this whole mix. What, what's your, your view of Blessed Carl in this whole conflict? Well, to be honest, I don't really have a... I mean, be, being a monk, my the saints that I have a particular devotion to are all usually religious and and priests and sometimes even lay brother. My favorite saint is Saint Martin de Porres. Um, so I, I haven't really studied too much into Blessed Carl, more so than just what's what's on face value, so to speak. Whenever someone gives a, a brief explanation of uh, Blessed Carl and his his moment in history, that's that's what I know. Um, I do know it was it was pretty intense back in his day, like like Mike was saying, uh, Major Mike was saying that. Uh, you know, he was a daily communicant up until the point of his death, and I and I will point out that even in canon law, back in back in those days, you were for, forbidden of drinking even water uh, up to three hours prior to uh, um, prior to to receiving holy communion. And when he was he was sick, he was dying, he still refused um, to drink even water so that he could receive our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament um, as as viaticum. So I think that's that's quite heroic. I think there are what is this? Los Jose Maria Escriva. <laughs> <laughs> this was like ten years ago, guys. <laughs> there's a there's, there's a there's a ten year old conversion that, that's uh, yeah in, in play. But anyway, anyways, I think there there are a lot of things uh, <laughs> in blessed Carl life that are that are heroic, especially in in our times that that uh, we should certainly uh, study his life and look up to. So I have on here Colonel Ryan, self proclaimed. Obviously, I was never in the service. There's another man who is a colonel that also was never in the service and just started calling himself a colonel at some point and, or, and, and kept that title even though he never served, namely 
Edward Mandel House, who was a diplomat for Woodrow Wilson. And House was also part of the circle of Lord Milner and Cecil Rhodes, and was part of this whole goal of Rhodes, which was, oh, losing America was bad. We need to create this, not just re, you know, bring America back into the, the, the fold, as it were, of the British Empire, but more importantly for them, to conquer the world with an Anglo-American empire of sorts, which, well, well, it's funny. That's kind of what happened, isn't it? Um, nevertheless, Colonel House then is doing the diplomatic work for Wilson. Wilson is a very low human being, in my estimation, in a number of ways. Let's talk a bit about Wilson and his role um, in, in just in general uh, going in, into the, I mean, let's not do the Federal Reserve just because it will, uh, it will be on that all night. But uh, let's talk about Wilson as a pretty low human being. Started with uh, Kailash. <laughs> How many times am I going to screw up your name? Kailash is like Kailash is like guys. I came to talk about FTX. <laughs> and you know, Woodrow Wilson. Just, it, just. I mean, and of course, and if you don't know much about him, that's fine too. You just your impressions, what you get, you know, from the history books now, especially your perspective uh, from your background. What does a person like Wilson look like to you? Yeah, I am actually much more familiar with American history. Um, Wilson was the first Democrat president elected since the Civil War besides Grover Cleveland. And it happened because Theodore Roosevelt split into his own party and fractured the Republican vote, and it allowed Wilson to win. And I think it's very interesting that a great president who there's a lot to admire about you know, his hubris in the end is what allowed Wilson to gain enough votes to win. And I know Wilson had ties to the KKK, I believe, and was a terrible racist in addition to um, having bad governance principles. And he is he was a bad leader and he had bad ideas. But I think it's it's to me, the interesting lesson from it is that our guy, Theodore Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt actually enabled his victory by creating the Bull Moose Party. That's what I think about him. Although, um, if I'm not mistaken, there there was a study I was reading in a historical journal years ago, and it was in a Corbett documentary, it's how I backtracked it, where it was actually uh, the bankers that funded Theodore Roosevelt, threw money at him to, to get in the, the race to run against Taft in order to, which predictably split the vote and put uh, Wilson in office, which, of course, that goes back in your Federal Reserve business. But uh, Mike Wilson, the Wilson that sits there at the, the meetings of the drafting of the Versailles Treaty and, you know, says in the room that Christ, the Prince of Peace, had no plan for peace and, and other ridiculous and absurd things like this. What, what do we make of Wilson today? Well, Woodrow Wilson was the first globalist, really. I mean, Wilsonism is is synonymous with the League of Nations, which was his, his failed attempt at trying to erect what we have today, which is the United Nations, the precursor to the one world order. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had a disdain. I think someone else said this. He wouldn't even he wouldn't even uh, conduct uh, formal talks with any monarchs um, to include Wil uh, Wilhelm or uh, Nicholas or uh, Blessed Carl. Um, he just didn't. He just he just thought that monarchy in general had to be dissolved. He insisted upon it. Although, of course, he made a huge exception for you know George V and British monarchy, um, uh, and and 
for, for reasons that you know defy uh, logic and can only be explained uh, in terms of uh, bankster land. Woodrow Wilson was the man drawing up how the wor- the new world order was going to be. I mean, they literally had a map of the world in the room, and they were going to say they were partitioning Europe, and they were partitioning, uh, you know, the various holdings of uh, some of the some of the participants of World War One as well. Uh, you know, the the, the colonial uh, sort of holdings, the imperial holdings, and he insisted upon not only the the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was the closest thing to, to really claim to be the inheritor of the, of, of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, lest, lest we forget that it was, uh, although he was, maybe, maybe he wasn't the best Catholic in the world, but Franz Josef, who was on the throne immediately prior to Karl von Habsburg, Franz Josef, who was who, who kicked off World War One as the leader um, before he died, he exercised an ancient right that was reserved for the Holy Roman Emperor, which was to veto the election of a pope. Imagine this, ladies and gentlemen. You have a conclave, and the conclave, and you have white smoke, and they go and they announce the Pope. And then the, the emperor says, no, not him. Not Rampola. Not Rampola, who was a Freemason. And he saved us from Rampola and gave us Pius X. So the link to the old empire, the link to the Holy Roman Empire, all the way to Charlemagne, Christmas of AD 800, uh, is, is most clearly articulated in the Habsburg family, the Habsburg line, blessed Carl. And so in Wilson's mind, that has to go. We cannot have a connection between church and state. We have to sever any ties between crown and country, or between between crown and altar, right? And, um, and that is Wilsonianism, really, in a nutshell. He is the, the penultimate globalist. And... If I gave you his resume today, you would assume that he was a globalist. President of Princeton University, governor of New Jersey, an academic with a PhD. Of course he's a globalist, right? But that was that wasn't very, you know, um common in the early 20th century. Uh of course, if you had those three marks today, you would have you, you would just you'd be a third wave feminist with a shaved head or something, you know, um, and and like a you know a hole in your face or something. But but yeah, that, I, I mean, he really was one of the worst presidents in the history of of the United States and one of the worst leaders in the history of the world. And as I said, the tactically the war was over, and everybody knew it was over, but he would not allow the war to end. Until the empire was dissolved and the crown was cast aside. Wilson sets up these negotiations at Versailles, touring Europe. He's having a grand old time. Meanwhile, in Prussia, it's not quite a grand old time. War vet, as soon as the armistice is happening, the Germans get home in, in great order. Now, Ludendorff misread this and said, oh, wow, see, we still have the fighting spirit there. What he completely misread is the men wanted to get home. They, they had had enough of this. And they got home 
to a completely devastated Prussia and in greater Germany as well. The, the blockade from the, the British, which was frankly um, a war crime, had brought everyone to starving levels. And in the meantime, in Berlin, the Bolsheviks bring out Spartacus Week. Now, if you don't know what Spartacus Week is, there's a book uh, called The King's Depart, 1919, The King's Depart, The Tragedy of Versailles. Or something, I might have gotten one end of the title wrong, but uh, it, it documents in, in chilling detail what actually happened, the side you never hear about. What's going on while well, Wilson's sitting there whining and dining in Versailles and drafting this stupid treaty? Well, the, uh, the Bolsheviks take over Berlin and actually hold the government for about a week or two. And the and then it's another branch of socialists who aren't as uh, bad as as the Bolsheviks. They come out and they you know recruit a lot of these guys coming back from the front lines and turn them into a military force. And that's what allows them eventually to push out the Bolsheviks. And and of course, and they didn't coordinate the revolution. But as it goes on, you know, every German city, even Bavaria, falls to the Bolsheviks temporarily. And, and they, the Germans had just barely managed to contain this Bolshevik revolution and send diplomat, a diplomat over to, to Versailles. And, and the West knows absolutely nothing about it. They don't have any idea the struggles that the Germans have been going through to save Western Europe from Soviet Bolshevism. They have no idea. James, looking at this, Wilson and then uh, you know Spartacus Week and all the things that happened there, and in and the absurdity uh, of what took place at Versailles. Reactions. Well, I, I'd like to just keep reacting uh, to Wilson for a second here. I mean, Please. his earlier comment that you, you mentioned in his earlier comment, Christ did not want peace. He's absolutely right. Christ did not want peace. The caveat is Christ did not want, neither had he ever talked about accepting a fake world peace matter of fact you talked about something like this would happen you know people want peace at all costs but the peace they want has nothing to do with christ and that's exactly what christ does not want us to live in a world that is uh filled with ideas that are contrary to uh what he wants uh for us to live uh, and this new world order which was being formed by these global elites, this, these League of Nations, uh, was not something that uh, the whole world could prescribe themselves to. And uh, I, I think it's pretty, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure, uh, looking at the landscape of things back in uh, the turn of the century, uh, the idea that you had Catholic nations out there uh, wanting to do Catholic things was, was such an affront to the idea of a League of Nations that the entire system had to be toppled down so that a false peace could be, could be you know, put up in its place. And that's exactly what uh, the grand scheme was. And Wilson saw that, and that was an entire, that was a threat to the entire new order, which is why we had to have World War I and subsequently World War II. Okay. Um, Brother Martin is off camera. Oh, there we go. Brother, uh, reaction real quick. Woodrow Wilson, uh, just in the full context of the quote, James, too, when he says that, you know, Christ, the King of Peace, gave us no plan for peace. Um, Wilson said it in a very mocking way of religion in the church and what he meant by it. And Clemenceau is the atheist who is the premier of the French Republic. He took the meaning right away. 
that uh, the church has no solutions for us. And, you know, Christ has no solutions for us. We men here, we will forge peace. So is that, but you're exactly right, you know, in that way. But that's what Wilson was talking about. You know, not, not so much that, um, you know, men can't make peace, but or that, you know, world peace. Yeah, it's obviously illusory. What he meant was men will make peace where the church has failed. Well, but, that's, but, but, but that's exactly the uh, the point is man always thinks himself able to do things which, uh, you know, uh, they're saying, well, the church has failed at this, this and this. Where's the global fraternity that the church is supposed to bring? We need a fraternity here and it's not being realized in the church. Let's make something of our own fashioning. Let's make Freemasonry. Right. And in, in a sense, they they are they know what it is they want. And it's something that's totally, absolutely different from what Christ wants. What do you think we input. need to do? Oh, oh we need a revolution. Yeah, and we need it no, now. Not, not later. Now. Sorry, uh, Brother Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Bring the revolution, brother. <laughs> Wait, so I never got the end of that the, the question. You started off the question talking about Woodrow Wilson and... Uh, the, in the Bolshevik takeover in Germany and... Um, Okay. Man trying to make a peace that's just man. Rejection okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. of the church. Right. But I, I think this uh this is the fruit of uh, what was going on during the Enlightenment period and the development of liberalism, the understanding of the state of nature, what what a what a human being was. And no longer trusting God, therefore no longer trusting its his interest institution, the church, um, thinking that the church um, can't provide solutions, but the reality is the church provides the only solutions. It's just that the world, especially if you come from a liberalist perspective, it can't understand the solutions. I mean, it, the question is, what does self-governance mean? Both liberals and, and individuals as, as Catholics, um, we understand the, the word self-governance to mean complete, something completely different. For, for a liberal, it means uh, being able to control your situation so you can always get what you want. For a Catholic, for someone who's pursuing virtue, virtue is the power to control vice. Self-governance is, is the ability to control your passions. But for liberal, it's not. And so... When it comes to whether or not the church can provide solutions, well, the solution is always to control your passions. But the liberal doesn't want to control their passions. They want to escape that, um, which is why I, I uh, mentioned Francis Bacon earlier on. And it, it's two completely divergent mentalities, two people going completely different ways, which in one sense result in the church losing its voice because the major majority of civilization has has bought into liberalism, has brought into this, this new definition of liberty, which is to do whatever you want because you want when you want. That's the new definition of liberty, but the new but the definition for, of liberty as a Catholic is to do what is good. Um, and so yeah, there's people people always you know atheists always always criticizing uh, religions for starting wars, but I, I don't know what has started wars more so than than uh, Hobbes and his idea of, of of the state of nature being man at war. The natural state of man is war, and so uh, I mean, liberalism is its own its own religion. As we've seen, um, even in, in news this week, uh, someone called the professors at universities priests, you know, secular priests. Um, but we're just we're just seeing the, the fruits of this one little seed of an idea um, that 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 uh, divinized technology, that divinized the human will, that made each man their own gods uh, to do whatever they want. Um, we could talk about individual details of all these things in, in history, but I think. More and more we see this deep, guys. More and more we see this, this, the spirit of the world, so to speak, influencing absolutely everything. And it's, it's 
It's it's fundamental. We don't we we no longer know what it what it means to be a man. We no 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 longer know what it means to be a human. But that that's the the beauty, the the wonder of the incarnation, that God not only reveals God to man, but re- He reveals man to Himself. He He teaches us who who we are, and that's precisely why we need the church. That's precisely why we need the traditional Catholic faith and not the Novus Ordo Bogus Ordo religion because uh, they've sold out. Um, it's precisely because traditional Catholicism is the answer for all, all of the distress that we're experiencing uh, in our times, you know, starting centuries ago. World War One brings about the Great War, part one, as it were, brings about the end of Christendom, wipes away the old world. But this is what happens when you fly nine G's. Yeah, not, yeah, not good. Wow. Uh, more seriously, though, uh, so we have all the parallels of World War One coming in today, and and they've been, you know, mentioned them piecemeal a bit. World reserve currency at the time was the British pound, but the uh, Austro-Hungarian uh, currency was also one that was heavily used. You have uh, so many of these alliances, flashpoints that could eventually come out and and create conflict that will become. Uh, major powers fighting all over the world. So now one of these flashpoints just kind of went off this week. Sorry, I thought that had subtitles. Let me do the news clip. President Zelensky is digging in this morning, insisting that his country didn't fire, accidentally or otherwise, a missile that crossed into Poland. I have no doubt it was not our rocket, he said. Asked about that, President Biden saying overnight. That's not the evidence. Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, called it a tragic accident, most likely caused by a misfire from a Ukrainian air defense system, an assessment shared by the Pentagon. We have seen nothing that contradicts President Duda's preliminary assessment that this explosion was most likely the result of a Ukrainian air defense missile that unfortunately landed in Poland. But the U.S. and NATO nonetheless blamed Russia for the incident, suggesting Ukraine was only using its air defenses after Russia had launched a barrage of missiles targeting Ukraine's infrastructure. Like this attack in Dnipro this morning. While we still don't know all the facts, we do know one thing. This tragedy would never have happened but for Russia's needless invasion of Ukraine and its recent missile assaults against Ukraine's civilian infrastructure. Russia quickly tried to capitalize on the confusion, accusing its enemies of whipping up hysteria. Russia's UN ambassador saying this is not just an international attempt at disinformation, but a conscious attempt to bring NATO into direct conflict with our country. Russia says the missiles it launched against Ukraine were at least 20 miles from the Polish border. We don't know, but, well, we do know, don't we? A missile landed in Poland that killed these two citizens. That missile we now know is a Ukrainian S-300 surface-to-air missile. We know this. The serial number's on it. Everything points to Ukraine. Russia 
doesn't have that missile. NATO admits that they tracked this missile all the way into Poland. NATO knows where it was launched from. We know everything about this. Trust me, I used to do this for a living. When that missile was launched, we know it. When the radars were turned on, we know it. We know it's a Ukrainian missile. We know it impacted on Polish soil. Now, Zelensky may be in a situation where he's being told that it wasn't his. And I'll tell you why I believe this might be the case. There are elements of the Ukrainian military that realize, because let's put it in the context of why this missile was launched. Ukraine was getting a snot kicked out of it by 90 Russian missiles that were knocking out their electrical infrastructure and their gas production. Ukraine's going into the dark ages. And the Ukrainian military knows there's nothing they can do to stop this unless NATO intervenes. They need NATO to set up a no-fly zone over Ukraine. That would be their salvation. So to do this, somebody in the Ukrainian military, I believe, launched this missile at Poland. Why? The Russian missiles are coming in from the east to the west. The way surface-to-air missiles work is you have a big radar that detects this, then you have a little radar up front that guides a missile fired from west to east to intercept the missile. This missile went from east to west into Poland. How does that happen? And how does it do it on a ballistic trajectory? I know from my experience that you take it to make a surface-to-air missile, a ballistic missile, you point a radar point in the sky, the missile guides on it, and then goes to a ballistic trajectory down. Somebody in Ukraine painted the sky over Poland with a radar signature that sent a missile to Polish territory. That's the only way that missile gets to Poland. So, Oh, I see you cheating. Oh, screw you. I know, I am cheating. I'm texting you Sorry, I'm asking you for an unpopular opinion. Sorry. The, uh, so in the aftermath, of course, Zelensky released his, his own single. That's what it takes to fight a war, ladies and gentlemen. I guess. So let's uh, let's go around uh, back to Kailash. Um, well, your reaction to missiles that Zelensky is out there claiming are Russian, but are actually quite Ukrainian, and sitting in Poland. When I tell you I have absolutely no opinion on this, I mean I have absolutely no opinion on this. Thank you. Kailash is helping the show move along nicely. (laughs) Kailash is like, I'm here to talk about crypto. Can we get to the crypto stuff? (laughs) We're almost there. Almost there, Mike. Um, my favorite part of this whole story was Jack Prozobiak, uh, the uh, conservatard uh, at, at, at whatever, human events, immediately going to DEFCON 3 and saying, we need to have a world war. There are two, two Polish dead and, and with a last name like Prozobiak, of course, he cares about that sort of thing. Um, you know, two farmers, two peasants in Poland dead over this, which is a tragedy. It's a horrible thing, obviously. It's a false flag. Everyone could see it except the cucktards. And he was getting retweeted by a bunch of even trad Catholics who were like, yeah, this is an act of war. We have to do something. Article 5, you know, the NATO agree- of the NATO agreement. Guys, we, it, we have to have adults in the room at some point when these things happen. Um, I mean, and, and it, it didn't really take long for people to start questioning, you know, whether or not this was actually a Russian missile or not. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Zelensky is one of the worst human beings on the planet. He is the guy, let's let's never forget, 
He's the guy who handed 12 rounds to every farmer in his country and gave him a weapon and said, go forth and conquer, right? And they got slaughtered. And now there's no food coming out of Ukraine. And that's about a quarter of the wheat market on planet Earth that's just gone now. He sacrificed his own people, his own farmers, his own productive people, just sent them to... Uh-oh. Uh, okay. I don't know what happened there. There he is. <laughs> Mama Susan hitting us up again. She was so mad. that Karen from wherever, I don't know, from Malaysia, Saigon, wherever she's from, she was really ticked. Uh, but no, this this is a bad dude. He's uh, he's a member of the Red Sea Pedestrians. He's an actor. He was installed by the United States. He's a puppet government. And here he is uh, murdering his neighbors, his so-called NATO neighbors, in order to incite World War III. This is a guy, by the way, one more thing, who was talking about preemptive nuclear war who was endorsing the fact that we should preemptively start nuking Russia because it's going to come to that anyway. This is a guy who has a penthouse in Miami with $4 billion in cash in it. I know people who have seen it. This is not a joke. This is the most corrupt human on planet Earth. And he's, he's into money laundering. He's into human trafficking. He's pro-LGBT. Um, and oh, by the way, in the middle of a war, in the middle of the war to 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 save his national sovereignty, defensive war for where all where the existence of Ukraine supposedly is on the table, he has time to do Vanity Fair cover articles. Uh, he has time to explore oh, address. Yeah, the the, the, the concerts, the rights of uh, of disordered people who confuse um human organs which are not made for procreation i mean literally he's the he's one of the most despicable people on planet earth and now here he is just carte blanche murdering people in poland and anywhere else on the planet in order to achieve what we don't know james reactions real quick and brother so we can move along to the next piece so it's it's quite fascinating that everything is coming to a head now. We're seeing um, uh, this narrative unravel, uh, and people are starting to see how there's there's not the desperation that we thought there was out there. There's a manufactured desperation, and each time we are uh, shown images of Zelensky, uh, it's now being uh, brought up. You know, uh, sorry, money laundering is now being being uh, brought up, especially with this, this last week, the um, unraveling of the FTX scandal. And um, if this isn't a clear picture of what's been going on since March, or rather February of this year, when people started losing their minds over uh, the uh, Ukraine situation, uh, hailing him as a, a hero, now they see him. Uh, he's mired. He's right in the middle of this FTX scandal, um, and that—that's what I think people should be taking away from this. Is there's something bigger than what we um, 
what we know, obviously, and time always tells, you know, so jumping right into uh, this side or that side, it never bodes well. We always want to sit back and have a very graduated, uh, you know, process of coming up with or at least understanding uh, the playing field before we start making uh, life changing decisions, you know, to nuke each other. Brother Martin, real quick, and we're going to get into Kyle Esch's wheelhouse finally. Um, what was the question? World War Three. Oh yeah, World War Three. My Mike came in and is like asking questions about his unpop, and so that's how I was, I was like, "What's my unpop?" So that's sorry, it's kind of forgot the other question. Yeah, World War Three uh, definitely doesn't need to happen. But we've gotten North Korea a little bit involved. Recently, Russia uh, accused the United States of uh, instigating North Korea and, and getting North Korea involved, shooting missiles over Japan. So the United States is now doing military drills with uh, with Japan. So it's like uh, it's not just in the in the theater of Ukraine, Russia, but also within China, North Korea, and Japan that the United States is also involved in, uh, and also with China and Taiwan. Um, there, there, there are many places this happened. So this isn't just a, a Ukrainian thing. Um, so it's actually, in one sense, it's it's more serious than just Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky's not the only player in this game, um, and so I mean, if if one person gets involved, if Russia gets involved, China's going to get involved, North Korea's going to get involved, Iran's going to get involved too. Um, the United States this past week just just uh, sunk a boat that was clearing explosives um, from uh, that was that was on its way to Yemen, and so things 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 are definitely heating up in in, in several different places. So this isn't just a this isn't just a Zelensky thing. Like he's he's definitely a, a major actor, so to speak. No pun intended. Um, in all of this, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. But uh, but it, it it's bigger. It, it's 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 something that's yeah. It's definitely bigger than just Russia Ukraine. So we need to definitely keep uh, keep watching the news of what uh, Kim Jong Un is doing in North Korea and what Xi is doing in in China and and what what the Iranians are doing in, in everywhere. But thankfully, we have the House now, and we're going to investigate the Biden laptop. And also the fact that Hunter Biden was on the board of some energy company in Ukraine, too. So we're going to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> oh, Just vote yes, harder, yeah. invest in the system, maintain – sorry. Speaking <laughs> of investing in the system. Well, no, 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 no. I, I, I actually – The viewers can't agree. see it when he gives me that glaring <laughs> no, no, he's no, giving I, it to me. No, you're so wrong <laughs> because I actually completely agree, Calvin Robinson. I'm incredibly worried uh, – if this war drags on mm. for months which and months and months or longer, years. which is what Putin is clearly intending, by the way. Not just him. Uh, well, in what I mean is in terms of how he wants to do the, the, uh, the referendum in the Donbass region. So this is not a short-term thing. This hope that he was just mm. going to end the war uh, is misplaced. But it's not our war. I do think Putin is a bad guy. I'm not a Putin apologist, but I think Ukraine is a corrupt regime. Nazi sympathizing regime that is a massive money laundering operation, taking billions from the West and shoveling it back in suitcases full of millions to corrupt Western politicians. Um, I think we could have ended the war, or the war could have ended in April. It didn't because vested interests want it to continue. And we do not have the money to keep shoveling over there. Rebecca Reed, do you think we need to keep funding this war? It just feels like, and I'm not the Prime Minister, and I'm unlikely to be the Prime Minister, but were I the Prime Minister at some point, when we decided to start pledging billions or something, I would say, cool, and when will we be stop doing that? And when we tell the country we're going to give them loads of money, should we maybe let them know how long for? Like, surely when you make this plan, you have to have an exit strategy. It's extraordinary that they just... The last time we talked, 
we were talking about philanthropy and I know you set up working with the Ukrainian government ways to use crypto to raise money for the government. I just wanted to ask you quickly, because obviously they've also changed the rules, concerns about sort of spillover effects and substitution away from their currency. Yep. How much money did you raise and what do you think about this as you know, a tool for the governments, but also the risks associated with it too? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that gets to the point that this can be a great thing for the world. I think it can also be a really messy thing. Um, but I, I, I think that that at its core, you know, we, we've we've seen uh, millions of dollars go through, um, you know, the systems we, we've given. I think something close to a million ourselves as well uh, to support, uh, you know, humanitarian aid um, and, and growth in Ukraine. And I, you know, I think when you think about what it would take to get, uh, you know, to get funds both to the the government there, where we do have a relationship with the Ukrainian government um, for raising capital um, for them using cryptocurrencies um, that that runs through FTX. Um, you know, whether it's getting money to the government or whether it's getting money um, to individuals there in need. Um, you know, there are literally tanks outside of the banks, and and and, and this gets to I think one of the you know places where it can be really important to have a fully digital banking system. Um, a fully digital banking system in Ukraine, of course. So the FTX scandal, of course. Uh, Kyle Esch, let's get into, into this. FTX, a guy named Bankman says, uh, I'll take your money. <laughs> People give their money to a guy named Bankman, and uh, it, it disappears, probably in uh, Ukraine for Zelensky's hookers and blow. I don't know what, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> This is why people subscribe to the rundown, okay? <laughs> so, Kailash, real quick, um, or as much time as you want to talk about FTX, the, the financial implications, the implications for cryptocurrency, what's happening in all, all the markets as a, as a result of that and, and, and so many other things. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I was just at the Catholic Crypto Conference, and obviously this was a big topic. And it's so it's so insane, the people who who trusted him and like the people who um, were on stage with him. But, but, you know, one thing just to start off with this that I find so funny is that uh, president Bill Clinton was duped by both the Theranos founder and him, oh. which I find so funny that he was a promoter of both of these individuals and they Slick were both scammers. Slick Willie. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's like it was it was too good to be true and and he he fooled people into thinking that he was doing all the things right and you know in in some regards it's like nobody does their due diligence and you never expect someone to literally spend all the money but he did which is crazy you know he kind of like he he took corruption to a new level i think this will be the biggest financial um scam in history you know bigger than madoff and if you think about the the size and the scope and the um the mainstream nature of ftx you know i was thinking they sponsored the the miami basketball team's stadium you know and they had all these huge <laughs> promoters and these huge people and they had commercials on tv you know the the scope of it is I, I think it will be it will go down as the the biggest scam in the history of the economy because the range of people who are involved in it um, top to bottom not just the ultra wealthy but even just normal people is is absolutely crazy 
And, you know, he creates this startup in the Bahamas to try to do something that uh, is really, you know, basically just crazy to enable people to do these leveraged trades that he literally just couldn't do in the United States. And he did it in the Bahamas. And you know what? He took all the money and spent it on himself. It looks like, I mean, it, it's, it's a massive fraud. Uh, just a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. He, and it's so funny when I see him talk, I'm like, man, this guy will not do well in prison. I don't know what they're going to give him, but it's not going to be good for him. If he goes. Mike, Mike uh, Bankman made off. Bernie made off. He made off with the money. Is made there a money? Yeah, right. Is this? It almost seems too good to be true. Like like people were given these names or took these names on purpose, or you know somebody somewhere up high, uh, you know, in uh, Dick Cheney, Carl Rove, what? Uh, are, are Morgan you, level you, said, "Hey, we need to get the right names to fool the people." <laughs> are are you have a problem with names like Greenberg and Goldstein? Uh, not intrinsically, given uh, where I come from, but at the same time, I have a huge problem with what they do. I'm just wondering, because it seems like, uh, no, I mean, uh, Kailash is right. This is the biggest scandal in, in American financial history and in, in global financial history. Uh, it won't be covered as such. You won't get fair coverage on it uh, by anyone, anywhere, um, except for the rundown, of course, and which is why we have Kailash on. And by the way, a note on Kailash uh you know we're we're lucky to have him. He's he's probably one of the biggest defectors from big tech and convert to the Catholic faith, and we're happy to have him on the rundown, uh, weighing in on on this issue, which touches technology, but it also touches the economy. Why do we care about this? Well, we care about this because cryptocurrency in general is supposed to be an alternative to the failing currencies, the fiat currencies. And it's supposed to be a safe store of value as well as transactable, a way to transact with people outside of the corrupt Federal Reserve System. What we are seeing immediately in the wake of the FTX scandal meltdown is calls for two things. Number one, government, quote unquote, oversight of crypto markets, which we've always known is coming. Uh, and if you didn't know it was coming, sorry, you just didn't watch the rundown. Uh, but number two is federal cryptocurrencies, federal digital currencies, which is being rolled out. And the announcement of it came within hours of FTX melting down of, of the news of it, that 12 of the major financial institutions in the world, including names like Bank of America and Wells Fargo, are going to participate in a rollout of a federal digital currency. What does this mean to you and me? Well, it means a lot, ladies and gentlemen. It means a heck of a lot because if your social credit score isn't high enough, if your behavior isn't good enough, if you are not uh, American enough, uh, patriotic enough, or whatever the metric is enough, then they can cut you off and you are not going to transact. This is the mark of the beast. I've been talking about it for two years now. People say I'm crazy. I told you to stay away from crypto. I know. I, I, know. I, I have been short on crypto from the beginning. I think it's a honeypot. I think, uh, I think there are multiple reasons why it's a honeypot. Number one, it draws assets away 
from real physical currencies like gold, like silver, which artificially drives the price down. It gives you the, the feeling that you are storing your value somewhere that is safe. But ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that, that makes a currency a currency is accessibility to the currency. You have to be able to access it. If one of those stray Russian or Polish or Ukrainian missiles takes down your power grid and your 5G network, are you going to have access to your Bitcoin or your other digital currencies? Will you be able to transact? The answer is no, of course. All right. So um, for, for, for this and so many reasons, I feel vindicated in opposing cryptocurrencies in general as an asset class, as a as an investment from uh, from the asset class point of view, but B as a as a viable currency, and now what we are seeing is that the federal governments around the world, the ba- the the banksters around the world, federal banksters, are going to try to emulate uh, what was done by an anonymous, just a you know just a good guy. Right, just an anonymous guy who wrote a white paper about Bitcoin and said, "Hey, we should do this thing." And he's just, you know, it, it was so good for humanity that he just did that and didn't, you know, copyright any of his work or submit for patents on any of his work. He's just a gift to humanity, right? From an anonymous uh, NSA employee, and so it's a, it's amazing. So let me uh, let me do this, both uh, Kailash and Mike, uh, to jump in, and James too. Um, in this area because there's a lot of people who say okay well look yeah federal blockchain currencies that are controlled and all these things that's obviously bad we don't want that but crypto managed right if you managed it right it, it would work just fine that that's the argument um you know that some people will make hey crypto in and of itself and the technology in and of itself can actually be a good thing can actually be used well some people will say what do you say to that Mike, then back to Kailash. Oh, uh, uh, my, my mind immediately went to communism. Uh, if we can just do it well, then it will be wonderful. And the only problem with communism, according to the communists, is that it just hasn't really been implemented very well in some places. And so uh, if we can do it well, it'll be great and everyone will be happy. You'll, of course, own nothing, live in the pod and eat the bug. But you'll be happy. Um, you know, look, I think that as we look at this is not the only crypto scandal that there has been. Um, the asset class is incredibly volatile, much more so than any other asset class. Um, and, you know, somebody in the comments said something, and I, and I think this is interesting. Ann Barnhart, I love her. I think she's great. Hope she comes on sometime. Maybe she will. I doubt it, but maybe she will. She hates me, but hey, I'll be if nice you, if she comes on. If you can't defend, you're so unhateable. Like I'm the one that everyone hates, and and after me, it's brother. <laughs> well, when it comes to the the thing that she's most known for, uh, the, the question of Benedict and, and everything, I'm the most hated at, at this whole group. So okay, okay, all right. But look, you and I get along, and I like yeah. I don't even know who the Pope is. So anyway, look. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. So the, the, what Ann Barnhart says is that if you can't defend it with an AK, then you don't own it. 
<laughs> and I think that applies. There's some truth. There's some truth to that. <laughs> yeah. Kalash, uh, what would you say to people who are like, well, hey, you know, yeah, this Fed Fed coin or whatever it's going to be called, that, that's a huge problem. They're controlling the blockchain, whatever. But you know, Bitcoin, that's that's going to be the thing. You know, just on all the exchanges, we're going to dominate. Everyone just goes to that because that's secure. Or whatever the next crypto that people are going to pump up to say, hey, that's okay because it's done right. Yeah, you know, personally, I I have never understood the attraction to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And I've asked so many developers and so many technologists to explain to me what is so good about it. And um, a lot of the feedback is like, you know what, in these in these smaller markets or these emerging markets in these third world countries, they don't have this trustworthy banking system and they need this new tool in order to have the ability to gain interest on their deposits or whatever. And I mean, I can kind of understand that, like their governments are even more kleptocratic than ours and they're unable to participate in a financial system. And then others say, well, this is a way to digitally uh, transact dollar, digitally transact um, a currency in an extremely cheap way. And then that kind of has these novel consequences that no one's ever seen before. But one thing that I find, you know, the most interesting is it, it is, it is basically a, it is a currency based on distrust. You know, I don't trust who I work with. I don't trust who I'm going to transact with. I don't trust someone on the internet. And this, this cryptocurrency gives me an ability, the smart contracts on the blockchain give me an ability to transact and work with people that I don't trust in this anonymized way that is it's um, contractually obligated by the tech. But the thing for me personally that I, I think about when I hear that is like, I'm not, I don't want to do business with people I don't trust. And the fact that the code can be written in such a way that forces the trust to happen it's not really that appealing to me because it might just be my personality and it might be, it might be a more traditional conservative minded person, but I don't want to work with people I don't trust. And I don't understand how that is valuable for anyone who's actually trying to do long-term business that you enable them to over time, keep working with people they don't know, keep working with people they don't trust. And you, you codify it in the code. I don't, I just don't get that. I don't really understand the point of that. Certainly. Uh, Brother Martin, we've had uh, some commentary on this. What what do you make of the whole question of uh, digital currency, its intangibility? What do, what do you see in the scholastics that, that would suggest it's probably not a good idea? Well, as Michael was saying earlier, the, in order for it to be a legitimate currency, you have to be able to own something, own something. I, I saw a tweet earlier this week um, from from a wife and mother complaining that there was some government agency that came to her house to measure the shed in her backyard uh, to see how big it was precisely because it was going to go into the appraisal or however much they were going to charge in property tax. And it just dawned on her that they were, that they were going to uh, charge her for something she already owns. Um, and so in one sense, we, we've, we've already been screwed um, with currency, even the fiat currency about uh, how much our dollars value, how much, well, how much our work, um, Required how much how much we're, we we gain money wise from the work that we do and the depreciation of that dollar 
And then again, um, being taxed on property, things that we already own, technically we don't really even own what we own. Um, and then the digital currencies and all the all the problems that you just posted on the on the last tweet that uh, you know if you, especially if you uh, go past your carbon quota per week, they can just shut you off. So it, it's all a matter of control, which is I mean progressivism has has gone even now beyond liberalism and be able to do whatever you want. Now they're WEF. This is this is post liberalism. This really is post liberalism where you're going to do what the WEF tells you to do and you're going to be happy doing what they tell you to do because everything will work out everyone you know everything will everyone will be happy everyone will be provided for or whatever else um that they want to say so it's a it's an introduction to a, a post-liberalism order um that is that is different what we've ever had and uh the the united states government has bought into it obviously with the with, with especially with the democratic party and the biden administration they're all they're all in on it um it's about a complete and total absolute control to, because they view the human person as well as, as pure matter, they're, they're materialists. They don't they don't believe necessarily in a human human soul, and so they think by some mere mathematical equation uh, that they can make everybody happy and have a have a perfect utopian world. Um, that's obviously not the case, and there's obviously going to be many persecutions uh, because of this. It's going to be very bloody, but the problem is, I think, in our society that we've become so so attached to our comforts. That um, even even Catholics have become, especially the ones that love capitalism, have become so individualistic, thinking as long as my family is provided for, that's all my that's that's all the extent to which my responsibility goes to. Um, caring nothing much for their neighbor, thinking that okay, if my neighbor is being persecuted, if there's, for instance, if if my if our neighbor was the the Amish guy who the government came to and said, hey, you can't sell, you can't butcher your own cows, you can't sell your own meat because it's not grown the way we want it to be grown. None of us would, would stand up and defend him. None of us would, would see the FBI walking to his property and, and do what we need to do to stand up and to, get, to gain numbers for, for, for this guy who's just simply growing, you know, raising cows, slaughtering them to, to feed yeah. people, simply. So we've grown too attached to comfort. So I really, even, even traditional Catholics, you know, I, I don't have a lot of hope that, uh, I mean, we're raising the awareness of these topics, but no one's going to have the guts to do what needs to be done for the sake of their neighbor. Everyone's going to say, to their families, hey, let's go hide in the bunker and hope they never come and get us. But then they're gonna they're, they're gonna come and get you. They know where you are. They know where you are. Everything about your life is known. You've, you, we like to pretend we have privacy. We don't. Um, but we won't have the courage to to stand together. That's true. It has to hit a certain crescendo where things are. Because as long as the prevailing system is there, you always think, oh, well. You know, things will get better. We can challenge this somehow. So right now, you know, the FBI goes to someone's house to take his guns, take him, take whatever. And you think, oh, well, that's bad. But you don't do anything. And I wouldn't do anything probably for the most part. And neither, neither would most, you know, most of us here in this audience, we ask ourselves, am I going to go out there with a gun and stop whatever agency is out there doing something bad? No. When everything breaks down and we realize we've bunkered down into the, it, it's kind of like in war. Are you going to go out and get in a battlefield with a bunch of guys and shoot someone? No. When war has been declared and, and it's a state of affairs where you know this is going on, yeah, you're going to go out and do that. And yeah, I think here's the same thing. Yeah. So, James, I was coming to you, James, uh, okay. is to react to everything and uh, and above. And some more. Well, uh, let me just pick back what you were talking about there picking up a gun and going to defend something that's local to you, something that's near to you. We, we remember the uh, BLM is, uh, incident. When I say BLM, I real I mean the real uh, oppressive BLM. Not the Bureau of Land Management. 
Bureau of Land Management. Exactly. 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 Uh, the OG BLM. Uh, they they uh, often get into these turf wars with landowners and with farmers. And I think this was about four years ago. There was an incident where mm-hmm. the, there was a standoff between some some people managing their land and the government wanting to come in uh, and basically um, uh, take away their rights. And there was a standoff. And uh, in that shooting, I think two, if I'm if, I, if I'm correct, I think two two people died. And this was sort of like, okay, well, you know, the uh, BLMs do what they they need to do, and you know, uh, that's just basically what we left it off as rather than going, Oh no, you know, a citizen is being attacked. Uh, the, the aggressor is the government. We can't even say that because that puts targets on our backs. Uh, secondly, let's talk about ownership and the future. We know how uh, people of our generation are. They see technology and they're enamored by it. They love it so much. And they think technology is the future. Uh, but the reality of it is, for instance, think about the scenario. You have a, Tesla car. Your Tesla car is everything that you want it to be. You, you get in your car. It's automated. You have the driver. Uh, some computer is driving your car for you. This is where people want us to go. But the next logical step is what happens if that car malfunctions? What happens if that car decides to stop? Oh, you didn't pay some tax that's been levied on you by the government, some immoral tax. Oh, no, he's in his car. Biden just push, push for this in 20. Uh, I think 2036, by 2036, all cars should have some sort of automatic uh, shutoff system in, 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 you know, in them. And so you're already buying onto this idea that if, if you want to be happy in the future, you have to accept technology where it meets you. You're not asking all these other questions. Well, you know, my car is automated. Uh, there, there's uh, also a, a uh, you know, a uh, remote shutdown function which the government has forced into uh, car manufacturers, uh, you know, uh, sorry, uh, has forced into our cars using car manufacturers. And no one's batting an eye. This is where this is where we're headed. Do you really truly own the vehicle if you can't drive it out of an oppressive state into a free state? Maybe you want to move from California to uh, to Florida to evade uh, some, uh, you know, unconscionable taxes. What's going to happen when you get halfway and then you, re- you realize your your local, you know, uh, the, you know the uh, the office of the governor has shut down, you know your your car, and then you're stuck. Then the warning now is get get back to California. You're not going to Florida, and you, and you have to oblige. Can you imagine that? I can, you know, I still get letters from the state of California. I moved out of there six years ago, yeah. Yeah. and I still get letters from the California telling me that I need to renew my uh, my registration, and I have all these back registration right. fees. I'm right. like, I, I don't yeah. live there anymore. And then they track down your your license plate number. They shut you down, and they say unless you pay this fee, yeah. you're not your vehicle is inoperable. This is I where guy, 10 years ago is from Florida, from based uh, Florida, right? And in yeah. Florida, if you don't have car insurance, if your car insurance lapses, they have to send a letter to the DMV immediately. And then your license is immediately suspended. So, he, you know, he moved to Idaho. He got a new uh, driver's license up here and he just assumed that canceled it down there. Well, it didn't. So they saw he didn't have insurance since so they immediately suspended his registration and his license. And uh, in Idaho, for not having insurance that the state of Florida saw, he did have it up here. 
And so a sheriff pulled him over and then he explained it. He's like, oh, yeah. I said, well, you're lucky the state police didn't get you. You'd be yeah. going away in cuffs. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Just get this call in the morning, get this taken care of. State police versus right. ser- uh, sheriff's office. Yeah. yeah. I uh, was lecturing some of my uh, students about uh, credit scores. And um, we were talking about, well, the context of it was, what is the most important number in your life? And some people are like, well, maybe it's your social security number. Maybe it's how much money is in your bank account. Perhaps it's your birth order, the size of your family. Maybe it's your birthday or, or your height, weight, your BMI. What is the most important number in your life? Um, maybe it's your blood pressure, you know, right? But I, but I, I have been arguing for years that is your credit score. Your credit score follows you wherever you go. It is omnipresent to your life. It dictates everything that you can and can't do uh, from, uh, from being able to purchase a home to a vehicle. It, it might even preclude you from being hired at a job as a W-2 wage slave. Um, your credit score is something that is absolutely essential to to how you, to your life functioning. Your social security number, yeah, okay, that's important or whatever. Maybe when you're 65, uh, and if it's stolen and stuff, you know, then then that could be bad. But but why is it bad? Because it affects your credit score. Uh, Mark Becker says number of chickens. Good good guess, Mark. I like that. I wish that were the most important number in your life. What's your credit score? Number of books. That that <laughs> score, yeah, right. Yeah, that, that number, the most important number in your life, is about to change. For two generations, or at least a generation and a half, it's been this credit score, which we don't know. We don't get to know how it how it, it gets scored. Some of it is um, our payment history. Some of it is the type of debt we have. Some of it is um, how old we are. Some of it is how much money you make. Um, it's a black box, totally opaque. We don't know how it works. Um, or a dark brown box. Uh, anyway, so we're <laughs> we're about to we're about to transition, Kailash, in my opinion, uh, from the credit score being the most important thing in your life to being your social credit score, because your credit score is one thing that affects whether or not you can finance anything whether or not you can obtain debt, whether or not you can get a credit card, whether or not you can get a student loan, if you can get approved for a lease, your credit score matters for all those things. But your credit score doesn't matter if you can pump gas. Social credit score does. Credit score doesn't matter if you can buy groceries. Social credit score does. And so I believe that the there, we're going to see a convergence between the credit score and the digital currency, and that is ultimately what... We are moving towards. They already have it in China. They're rolling it out across the land, and because of the post nine eleven surveillance state, as brother said, they know everything about us. They know who's watching the rundown right now. They know who the dissidents are. They know they know who the people are who are awake to this stuff. So there's no hiding from it. There's just and and there might be some prep that we can do for it. But in my opinion the social credit score will become like the credit score in terms of the omnipresent number that follows us around, which is more important than our age, our, our race, our political affiliations, 
our bank accounts, um, uh, uh, balances are, uh, it's the most important thing. And nobody ever voted on it. Nobody ever uh, said, right. uh, you know, hey, we need this. No one introduced right. Did the banks just started creating it? The, the credit bureaus just started keeping track of it. And then it was there. And right. then they, everyone started using it. And likewise, if you go around the Internet, and you, you type, you just Google yourself, right? You'll see this thing, my reputation score. And that's one of a number of sites that will score you based on publicly available information. And that's the, the beast system being put in place, really. Uh, Kailash, last word on social credit. In China, you already have Sesame Credit. You already have, uh, which now is interlinked with the health system that they have over there. It's like they're test running all the stuff over there in China, all the tyranny over there before they bring it over here, even though we're supposed to be against the Chai Coms, right? Uh, last word on social credit and all that. I'm sorry, not, you know not, uh, not Sesame Seed Oil Credit, you were trying to say, right? It actually used to be called Sesame Credit. Okay. When it was, it no, was you were just making sure it wasn't a seed oil. Yeah, no, no, it's not a seed oil. Okay, all right. Well, probably as bad as seed oils are, and I am a seed oil disrespecter, uh, it'd be healthier for you than social credit. You know what, guys? I'm actually not as afraid of this stuff. I think that our government is so incompetent, and I really <laughs> think that we're going to see a huge implosion of a lot of these schemes. You know, when we were talking about the government trying to do this um, cryptocurrency with these banks, I was thinking, you know, it cost them a billion dollars to make the Obamacare website. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember that. A billion dollars to make a website. And I'm like, <laughs> it crashed. <laughs> and then it crashed on the first day. And I was like, <laughs> I, I wonder how much money it would actually take them to make a public blockchain. It, it would be like, they are so incompetent that I don't think they could actually do it. And I'm more optimistic that we are actually going to be in the turn of a lot of these things because our government and our leaders are, are just too incompetent. And I have more faith that voting still does matter and that a lot of these schemes won't see the light of day, even as much as they want to. I just think they're so incompetent. But when Do you've you got think... a leader like this, Father, I very much worry about this guy's no, biceps. <laughs> His biceps are big as my calves. Look at this. There's a man. I hope we're on the same side. He's Russian. I don't care who he is. He's got some real biceps. We call them guns. And this is good for training. <laughs>
And I'm watching the news now. They're declaring the end of the Trump era. Now, okay, I can see how in New York you might believe this is the end of his era. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I live in Ohio amongst the poor whites. <laughs> A lot of you don't understand why Trump was so popular, but I, I get it because I hear it every day. He's very loved. And the reason he's loved is because people in Ohio have never seen somebody like him. He's what I call an honest liar. Well, I'm not joking right now. He's an honest liar. That first debate, that first debate, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen a white male billionaire screaming at the top of his lungs, this whole system is rigged, he said. <laughs> and across the stage was a white woman, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, sitting over there looking at him like, no, it's not. I said, now, wait a minute, bro. It's what he said. And the moderator said, well, Mr. Trump, if in fact the system is rigged, as you suggest, what would be your evidence? Remember what he said, bro? He said, I know the system is rigged because I use it. I said, God damn. <laughs> And then he pulled out an Illuminati membership card and chopped a line of cocaine up and did it right into the podium. No one ever heard someone say something that true. And then Hillary Clinton tried to punch him in the taxes. She said, this man doesn't pay his taxes. He shot right back. That makes me smart. <laughs> and then he said, if you want me to pay my taxes, then change the tax code. But I know you won't, because your friends and your donors enjoy the same tax breaks that I do. And with that, my friends, a star was born. <laughs> no one had ever seen anything like that. No one had ever seen somebody come from inside of that house, outside, and tell all the commoners, we are doing everything that you think we are doing <laughs> inside of that house. And they just went right back in the house and started playing the game again. <laughs> Democrats were sore losers. I'm a Democrat, and I'm telling you, as soon as he won, they started, started saying all that, he's colluding with Russia, he's colluding with Russia. It was very embarrassing as a Democrat, but as time went on... As time went on, Trump became loved. He's not so much loved on this program, however. Kayla's so <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Some of our listeners. It's crazy. So we've had a huge week. We've had Trump announce he's running for president of the United States, very likely to get ahead of the fact that he's going to be indicted. The announcement today of a special prosecutor who is uh, going to try to indict him on two counts, one related to the documents of Mar-a-Lago, one related to J6. Pelosi just yesterday steps down from leadership, announced she won't, won't run again. Stanny Hoyer, her number two, steps down from leadership, announces he won't. Uh, run again for leadership um so and this is one week after the red wave that never came um everything is in flux right now everything is in chaos all i can say is that the one common link that i can see between trump announcing and desantis kind of getting engaged the red wave that never came, Pelosi going away, Stanny Hoyer going away, um, is this. 
what they want is our investment in the system. They want us to believe that we can make a change. They want us to believe that our vote counts. They wouldn't give us the Senate because that would be too much, but they gave us the House, which is enough. So now we can have committees and hearings and subpoenas. And you got House members coming out saying that we're going to investigate Biden. We're going to investigate the laptop. We're going to investigate the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, there's All these things sound good on their face. But we saw that we saw the Benghazi investigation, right? Two yeah. years Benghazi investigation. Trey Trey Gowdy out there for two years, running his mouth, talking, talking, yeah. talking, talking a great game, Trey Gowdy, but not materializing anything. Same thing with the investigations with uh, this collusion. Uh, we saw Lindsey Graham out there losing his hair. To, even I posted things on Twitter going, "This Lindsey Graham 2.0 is amazing." You know, we saw him out there. All these Republicans, they're so calculated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, so that's a frustration behind something that we know is supposed to represent change. Mm-hmm. We know people are looking for something to point them, to help move them in the right direction. And they're mm-hmm. putting their faith in people they think will help th- th- their cause to turn, to turn, you know, back, to, to, to move in the right direction. But time and time after again, people are disappointed in their leadership. And that's why people are looking at Trump running again and saying, wait a second, you didn't even fight for us in 2020 when we said your elections were stolen. Yeah. What's going on? People mm-hmm. were ready to put down, you know, to, to move in the direction of, you know, I'm not going to mention anything here, but they, they were ready to follow along with him. And nothing materialized after that. And there was a, what happened was a concession. Here's a man saying, well, I concede because, you know, they're not going to let me take power. And here's Carrie Lake. You know, two years later, not having been prepared, was shouting top of her lungs for almost a year saying the elections were stolen. Elections were stolen. What was she doing on her turf, you know, in Arizona in preparation for what might come? Because nothing had changed in two years. You would think she would have legal teams ahead of all of this. And now the week after, two weeks after, she's posting videos from the day of elections saying, Tell us what happened. What was your experience? She should have done this the day it was happening. That's right. The day it was happening, she should have been doing this. But this, she's going to have a lawsuit. It's all going to be fixed. Just like uh, January 6th. Does it? Does the FBI have confidential human sources? Uh, did the FBI have confidential human sources embedded within the January 6th protesters? on January 6th of 2021. Well, Congressman, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I have to be very careful about what I can say about when. Even now, because that's what you told us two years ago. May I finish? Uh, About when we do and do not, and where we have and have not used confidential human sources. Uh, But to the extent that there's a suggestion, for example, that the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false. Did you have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters inside the Capitol on January the 6th prior to the doors being opened? Again, I had to be very careful. It should be a no. Can you not tell the American people? No, we did not have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters positioned inside the Capitol. Gentlemen's time has expired. You should not read anything into my... Decision uh, not to share information. Director Ray. Confidentially. 
But all those Republican, the red waves get investigate all this, right? And uh, oh, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, look, at this point, we just need people to be consistent. All right. So if if the feds never get it wrong in hard drive cases, but they get it wrong in elections, then can, what, what's going on? You can't have it both ways, right? So either either the whole system is corrupt or the system is trustworthy, and if somebody gets indicted, then you then they're guilty until proven innocent. Uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Kyla, you still think voting mem- matters? What do you think about all this? I believe that we cannot attribute to malice what is better attributed to incompetence, and I think that the leadership in the federal government is dictated much more by who's president and. We basically have no president now, but I believe that with a strong leader who maybe is a little bit more competent with Trump, that change can be affected. But it will take time. And I think it takes time to change the psychology of this society. But I really believe that um, that the evangelization task is in front of us. And as we draw more people to Christ, more souls will change, more decisions will change, and it can happen in the United States, and we have the framework and culture to to advance forward. Fair enough. We don't always agree here, but we allow that disagreement. Don't just uh, cancel people for disagreeing with us. <laughs> you're, you're, we're going to sue. We're going to sue. <laughs> yeah, we'll sue them. Sue them right but, now. But, Dogs his house. Right. See, blackmail but, him. Right. But, <laughs> but you know what's interesting is is Maybe. you know of course we we, we uh, you know in the world we're in you know we have these agreements and we have these disagreements and you know it's it's perfectly fine. Uh, what is not acceptable is uh, is pretending that uh, you know people like uh, Kevin McCarthy, for instance. I mean, I forget who it was. Was it Jim Jordan? Jim Jordan, you know, was asked, well, are you going to vote uh, for somebody else? You know, you're part of the Freedom Caucus. You can basically basically thwart this idea that Kevin McCarthy is going to become the next uh, speaker. And he said, well, no, he wasn't going to do it. So these are people who just, you know, they like like the thing to work for, for them a certain way. And I don't begrudge people for for believing in the systems that we have. Of course, it's part of the system that gives us a lot of things, but there, there are also a lot of negatives that come with this. But yeah, there, there are absolute, absolutely positives that come with being here and being able to to to, to have a voice. Uh, but I, I, I begrudge these politicians who are in office thinking that we don't see how they are working you know, with the machinery. You know, I mean, I know someone who says this, you know, before you would see people saying, let's rage against the machine, let's rage against the machine. Now they're saying, let's sage with the machine, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's uh, definitely coming to a head now where people, you will, you will see another party emerge from the ruins of the Republican Party, you know, and that's exactly what we're, we're going to be aligning ourselves with. People have long told us. Oh, don't talk about another party. It doesn't have to be the Libertarian Party. It can be other parties, basically. You know, uh, let's have a party that stands for a lot more. You know, let's have our presence. And it, it will start small. Of course, everything starts small, you know, and then we'll, we'll get bigger and bigger. We don't have to win seats 
uh, right now, but we have to basically start voting more and more on principle. You know, if, if we want our votes to really count, we have to vote on principle. And second of all, you know, the big thing out there is those voting machine systems have to have to go. You know, it's just the reality. If you guys saw 2000 Mules, which I did, I, I saw it. And uh, it's it's not something that is completely foreign to me. I saw that happen in 2000. You know, George Bush had these machines working for him in 2000. He absolutely affected uh, the, the votes he wanted from these from these machines. And, uh, he practically stole the election. In yeah, Ohio. yeah. You know, and yeah. then, so we've had this in place for so long. And uh, Mitt Romney up in the, uh, you know, they had a caucus. Like, where, where was the caucus held in 2007 where votes were just magically appearing for him? And uh, Ron Paul won that caucus. But they said, oh, sorry, it's actually Mitt Romney. Oh, well, sorry, Mitt Romney's unpopular. Oh, it was actually Santorum. You know, these are Republicans that are doing this to us. And so th- those people need to be voted out of office. And hopefully then we'll start to see real change. Uh, take place and you know we're, we are for institutions that actually work when they work you know uh we we want the system to work uh and for system to work we we have to actually take unpopular steps to attain uh the change that we're hoping to affect work kind of like this <laughs> nobody saw that don't worry nobody saw that (laughs) she really leaned into that one brother last word why why don't systems work as i was expressing before saying before voluntarism this idea within liberalism that uh freedom is really in doing what you want to do eventually the people that are working these these voting places and counting the votes are going to be in a predicament do they be honest or do they lie to do what they want to do because the ends justify the means, according to a lot of people? This is kind of the collapse of the American uh, American system, the American institution, American uh, civil life, American elections. Is precisely because Americans are taking liberty, taking their liberty to do what they want to do to affect their outcomes. In Arizona, we had someone who was running uh, for, for an office in, in Arizona controlling the elections. 48% of the machines didn't work. Go figure. Go figure. Um, liberalism is destroying liberalism. Liberalism is destroying the United States. And so it's it's unfortunate that we're 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 gonna be in the in the that we right now we're seeing the decline um, of a of a great empire, so to speak, as as I guess St. Augustine saw the decline of the Roman Empire in in, in 430 AD. Um, obviously we have our Catholic faith to hold on to. But um, what we really need to really need to focus on is localism. Uh, the idea that we 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 exist to support each other. Kind of what I was saying earlier before. Are we going to have the guts to stand up for for our neighbor whenever they get it, they raided by the FBI because they were at a a, a pro or a, a, an abortion mill, um, praying out in front of it? Are we going to be able to stand up for our neighbor, or are we just going to sit back and watch? Say, oh my gosh, that's so sad. They're persecuted. Oh my goodness. Here, let me bake a cake for. For his wife and seven children that he's left behind because he decided to to go pray okay so it's 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 that it's 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 time to uh stand up for each other to to consider of so as one massive unit uh to to be united or, or or fall individually um i think that's that's the kind of situation we're going to find ourselves in uh more and more and more and more we have to we have to really 
have, have a serious self-reflection. So, you know, what am I going to stand for? Who am I, who am I going to stand with? Who are my brothers? Who are the people that are going to stand side beside me um, in, in, in trying to, well, to move things forward? What are you, gay? I am not gay. I have relationships with women. Sex with men. And I got news for you. <laughs> I feel bad well, for Guy Lash right now. Whoops, we both did it at the same time. Oh, there he goes oh. again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to grit. Oh snap! Guy Lash, tell us, uh, tell us about what you got. Oh, I was very confused. Okay, <laughs> as happens on the rundown. Yeah. Okay. So. As the fans of The Rundown may remember, I am the co-founder in Fide Email. And the last time we came on, we actually had a great response from this audience. So I'm excited to share our name again. We provide the basic utilities of software for Catholics. And my co-founder and I are both Catholic. We both go to Latin Mass. And you get your email, calendar, and um, office products like Google Workspace Competitor and you can go to fide.email to get it. And we see that you can be deplatformed, you know, whether it's in banking or whether it's in this technology. And if we want to take advantage of these, these great tools, you want to do business with someone that you trust. And I think this is particularly important for parishes and for nonprofits and for people who really hold our values to, to see what we have. And you can visit us at www. Fide, F-I-D-E-I dot email, like it says in the link. Brother, my name is Brother Martin. I'm Grifter Extraordinaire. Uh, as I was saying last week, um, push is coming to shove so to speak for for one of the priests that we we the oldest St. Augustine are supporting um within the next few months we we'll, might have to temporarily be moving for for three months so that um, this priest can get a surgery and be close enough to the hospital where he gets the surgery to be able to recover obviously that means uh I mean finding a place to live running a house uh, extended stay or or aggressively searching out some sort of benefactor who has some some place that they can that can house us um so, and then also, I mean, being out of being out of where local live, you, things usually cost a little bit more money simply because, uh, you know, you just gotta make ends meet, um, utilities and all that kind of stuff. So, um, if you want to support the Obelisk of Saint Augustine, you can go to www.obeliskofsaintaugustine.com/giving and help us in our mission and in, in helping this uh, this particular priest um, have a life-saving surgery and, and help us help him. Um, obviously, it's not easy for for religious to to just leave their place to um a prayer and the routine and all that kind of stuff and um uh, but obviously it's, it's worth worth it to help save a priest's life and especially a traditional latin mass priest um because that's that's one of our, our tradition is is to is to preserve this way of life to preserve this faith the spirituality and, and everything else about it um and and helping this priest who's of the old guard who is you know who who, who remembers growing up with a traditional latin mass is is absolutely 
essential to our mission because it's not just that we're, we're receiving the, the traditional faith from books or teaching the traditional faith simply because of what we perceive the traditional faith to be, uh, but actually it's coming from someone who, who's been there, done that, who grew up with it. So this is uh, something that's extremely important to us, um, who, someone who's uh, especially dear to us. Um, so if you would like to help us out, um, you can go to www.obusinagustin.com slash giving. Um, you can go to the contact us page and, and write me if you would like to know more information about um, what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, so that's it. Who is it? You. Who's first? Go ahead, Mike. I'm going to grift a book. It's by Michael Hoffman. Oh, yes. It's called Usury in Christendom, The Mortal Sin That Was and Is Now Not. Or in, and, and Now Is Not by Michael Hoffman. You know, Hoffman, he's kind, of a, he's kind of a weird fellow. I've tried to engage with him on Twitter, and he's like, no, I don't want anything to do with you, even though I'm like, dude, I'm pumping your book. I like your stuff. But anyway, um, why is this book important? It's because usury is one of those sins that's not talked about, but we're awash in it. We are awash in it. My new thing is whenever I have dinner with a priest now, one of the questions that I ask him is, hey, Father, when's the last time somebody confessed the sin of usury to you? In the box. And usually, even like the famous priests, like the celebrity priests, they're like, uh, I don't never, I don't even know what that sin is. Did y'all know that the sin of usury was once so serious that if you committed it, like suicide, you were denied ecclesiastical burial. If you were a usurer and you died an unrepentant usurer, you were set aside. You were buried with the suicides. You didn't get your requiem mass. Nobody prayed for your soul because you were for sure damned. To hell. So what is usury? And how can we be sure that we're not committing it? Get the book by Hoffman, Usury in Christendom, the sin that was and now is not. I think it's very important that we understand this particular sin. So this week I'm not going to share anything in particular except some news that I'm working on some things that will require me <laughs> to ask your assistance going forward. Now, this is something I'm bringing to the rundown. It's uh, something that I've been working on for the last few years in general, but just now started actually doing the work to make sure that it's available to all of you. So all I can say right now is stay tuned and keep your ears and your eyes open. So, I have my usual litany of thank yous to everybody who's assisted, who's donated. There's people from this program that have materially assisted me uh, since my wife's cancer diagnosis. We had a screening today, and that, that helped clear the air on, on some things moving forward. I won't go into too much of that detail, you know, on, online, at least not without checking with her. Um, but uh, but again, I just want to express my gratitude to everybody who, who's helped us in this really difficult time. 
and everyone who donated to the Give, Send, Go, I know people from this program donated to that, and that's been extremely helpful because that's allowed me to cut checks to medical people, uh, which are piling up, although, again, I, I'm going to get some of those written off, but then there's child care things, and, um, and then just generally just, just helping me to survive as I manage two toddlers for the most part. Uh, while my wife is still recovering with this massive incision <laughs> where her stomach used to be. And, you know, I've got one toddler who's 19 months old, and he's just absolutely adorable. But he's got separation anxiety disorder because of two weeks where he had to be with uh, my in-laws family. And, and they were great to him and everything. But, he, you know, he's like every day, morning, daddy, night, daddy. And, you know, always, so now it's... Um, you know, I'm cutting intros and he's like asleep on my shoulder and I'm working on the computer to do that or I'm trying to type out some translation. And, you know, even if I put him down somewhere, he's going to wake up because that's that's, you know, some of the things that. So so keep that in your prayers. And, and I really appreciate it. Meanwhile, so the so the the press, you know, I've got people running that uh, taking care of a lot of the issues there and. Book club, book club last month. Everyone had the wrong ebook, and I apologize for that. I, and I just sent that out, so that should be fixed tomorrow, I'm told. So if, if the last month, if you were on the ebook only, or you're the, the book club subscriber and you didn't get the ebook, the right ebook, you got the other month's ebook, that'll be fixed. That'll all get sent out to you. This month, it's all been squared away, and so there are two books for the Mediatrics Press Book Club. One is Autobiography of an Old Breviary. And this is just a fantastic book told from the perspective of a breviary, of a totem Roman breviary prior to the reforms, even of Pius X. This is like in 1898, this book was written. Just, just a wonderful book all around. Fantastic book uh, told from the perspective of breviary of this, this priest that takes it along in his journey across the Atlantic to, to go you know, teach seminary in the United States. And, uh, and the breviary stops at different points and explains what it is to, to say the breviary devotedly uh, piously, etc. You know the the meaning, the, the, the structure of so many offices, their history, the origin within this fictional context of the the breviary telling a story of the people the priest meet. And it's a little on the smaller side, so I said, you know, I need to throw in another book. So throwing in the true story of the sword in the stone. Did you know there's a real sword in the stone, and it has nothing at all to do. With King. In fact, King Arthur steals. This story, right? Thomas Mallory actually steals this story to to put into Arthurian legend once it became known and popular. This is about a guy who lived a really bad life and said it had a vision, St. Michael the Archangel. And he says, Well, I need to get my act together. And then, you know, the short little book, but a nice, you know, nice account. You're not going to find that anywhere else. And, you know, he goes home, he starts living a pious life. His mother's all impressed. And then, uh, you know, he gets another vision to go do penance. And then his family's like, no, 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 no. your dad's dead. You got to carry on the family name. So they arrange a marriage for him and he finally accepts. And on his way to go meet the bride, St. Michael appears to him really and not in a dream, leads him up a mountain and tells him he's going to do penance. And he says, well, my sins are so bad. God can't forgive them. I mean, it'll be easier for God to forgive my sins than for this sword as he draws a sword to go into this boulder. And it goes in like hot knife through butter. And he says, well, I guess I'm going to do penance. And he stays there, and the, the sword becomes his own personal crucifix. So uh, so book club members, these are the two books you're getting um, for for the, the printed book version. The ebook, you're, you're getting this one. 
uh, autobiography of an old bravery, which you will not be sorry for. So uh, that's that's what I got uh, on the grifting end. So I'm going to drop out of Unpop so that uh, Kailash can uh, give his uh, his unpopular opinion. Last week's Unpops, um, that that whole Benedict thing again, man, that's that's <clears throat> unpopular. So uh, somehow I, I won that. Well, I think Mike had the the better opinion on that one, but. Um, Anyway, but so I beat out not doing Christmas carols somehow. <laughs> what what happened to Brother Martin? That was a meltdown. What that was, was, a what was meltdown. my? I thought I had a good one. That was a five percent. I guess a lot of people think Trump's a narcissist and it's all about himself. They could <laughs> be, or they're just it's, so much more in sense that I don't about Benedict. Exactly. I, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so we're going to move to the unpopular opinion segment and we are going to start with our guest with uh kailash what you got for us and now the moment you've been waiting for prepare to be mesmerized get on your tinfoil hats get out your pies for opinions more unpopular than an alpha male at a gender studies retreat it's the Rundown Zone Unpopular Opinions Segment. <laughs> I got my own intro. How about that? <laughs> you worked hard on that. That's I know, and I, I forgot all thing. about it. Um, I love the drum roll. I, just, I love the, the drum roll. nonsense threw me off. And what's hilarious is I go back into the analytics in the channel. And looking for the strikes, looking for the YouTube notifications, and and it says no copyright violations. I'm like, uh, you shut down our stream three times. Yeah, copyright. Um, the video is freely available on YouTube. By well, the way, but there anyway. is there is an extortionist perjurer hacker who is tweeting about me right now. As we're streaming, so I'm sure it has nothing to do with that. And I'm sure her friend's watching too because she did screenshot us from the last, or screenshot you, Mike, from the last uh, rundown with you and your your jacket, your cravat, and your cigar. So we know they're all watching. We know they're all watching. I know tonight. I tonight I decided to debut my Peterson pipe that Mm. I I bought. I bought this last year. No, this year I bought this this year in Dublin. At Peterson's, uh, right across from um, the school, the university right there. What is it? Trinity University? No. What is it called? Trinity, Trinity College. College. Trinity, Trinity College. College. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, but you know, you know, live your little your little small life, Audrey. It's cool. Keep <laughs> cool. talking. So, Mike, first up, unpops. Sorry. Oh, okay. Which order? All right. All right. Okay. Very quickly. Start the ticker. Ladies and gentlemen, I hate to inform you of this, but the election last week, the midterm election, was not stolen. Those are the actual results. They don't have to steal them anymore, ladies and gentlemen, because this is your American electorate. They are alt-left. They are indoctrinated with modernism. These are the real results. These are our real countrymen this is what they really think, and we got a lot of work to do. So, um, you know, it is what it is. If you don't like the results, 
you know, maybe we shouldn't live in our suburban neighborhoods where we drive our cars directly into our garages. We have no porches, no interactions with our neighbors. Everything is fine. You know, you live your life and I'll live my life. The libertarian cuck, you know, conservative, retarded point of view. Total boomer GOP thing where there is no body of Christ. There is no common good. There is no uh, idea that we're a community. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that we identify with national politics only. Definitely not state, definitely not county, definitely not city. Uh, the most important thing is who's running for president. Is it Ron or is it Donald? And this is what we get. We're a melting pot now. There's no culture. There's no ethnicity. We don't get to be Irish Catholics or Spanish-speaking Catholics or Polish Catholics or Italian Catholics or Nigerian Catholics. We don't get to be any of those things anymore. We're all just Americans. We're all just the same. Everybody does his or her thing, and this is the result. This is the actual result. No stealing, no funny business. No, no, I don't, you know what, brother? Sorry, I think you're wrong. I don't believe any of those machines were, I, I, it was all fine. This is literally how the state of Arizona is now. It just is. It just is. So what do we do? I don't know. Vote harder. I don't know. James, <clears throat> since you're already there, let's go. <laughs> right. My unpopular opinion is continuation from last week. Um, back on the Trump. Uh, oops. Uh, band. Well, not bandwagon, but uh, topic. Um, I was talking about earlier on how frustrated I am with what happened in 2020, uh, sp specifically how people could be uh, surrounding uh, a leader uh, who is the apparent victor uh, stemming from the elections that were held in November and the feeling of total abandonment uh, in what would have been a necessary cause to pursue uh, more than just the legal um, end of where all this could have ended, you know. So the idea that someone can talk a good game about uh, having an election stolen, but yet just sort of keep his base excited that something was going to happen and draw everything out. I mean, we were just taken from November 6th, well, November, what was the date? November 4th, or I forget the actual date. Drag, we were dragged through the process into January 6th and then into the legal battles following that into the um, runoff in Georgia. Don't forget that. There was a runoff in Georgia going into mid, I think, mid-January. Uh, we were being told something was going to happen, but nothing ever did. Now, if that's not a definition of uh, cuckery, I don't know what else is. And so my unpopular opinion is if this man were to run again, I voted for him twice. I will not be voting for him a third time. I'm I'm just done. So twice, but not thrice. You voted in 2020. I did. We this I is something I, I, I never said I was not going to vote. We missed this in the yeah. rundown interview. Yeah. When we brought yeah. you on. 
Did I mention something about that or not at all? <laughs> I don't. I forget. Yeah, no. I think you and Ryan were <laughs> of one persuasion, and I was of another persuasion. <laughs> Twice, but not thrice. Okay, so this past week, twelve Republicans voted for the Respect for Marriage Act of 2022, which overturned the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage between one man and one woman. My unpopular opinion that is that the, the split between Ron and Donald is precisely going to be over this, is, is homosexuality, LGBT, which who's going to pick what side? You had Ron, um, who passed a bill in, in Florida, don't say gay, and you have Trump holding an LGBTQ flag, you know, with uh, LGBTQ, TQ for Trump written in, in Sharpie. Now, this is this is what's important to understand about the Donald is that he is known for, and this is what everybody praised him for. He is known for hearing the voice of the people and representing the people in government. And the people are gay. The people are gay. People are pro, pro LGBT, all the conservatives, whatever. There's like eh, they, they fell for the argument. Oh, you know, love is love, love is love. They fell for it. They fell for for uh, for the little little phrase "love is love" because they can't think, and so this is what it's going to come down to: is 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 the uh, the rainbow flag, uh, the battle between Ron and Donald, and uh, and that's my unpopular opinion: is that the majority of Americans are gay, and Donald will be gay, and if you are Catholic and you love the Donald because he listens to the people eventually you're going to find yourself voting voting gay so don't vote gay kailash what you got my unpopular opinion is that the hosts on this show and the audience and the viewers actually have more hope in their life than they let on and that they should shine the light <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry, we're having a good time over That's here. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, oh, well, man. Well played. Well played. Was... I'm gonna send into outer space to find another race. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> What do you think we need play. to do? Oh, oh we, we need a revolution. Yeah, and we need it no, now. Not, not later. Now. <laughs> Kyla shows up to the rundown and dunks on all of us. <laughs> well played, sir. But it keeps well it played. interesting. <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for bearing with us with uh, Mama Susan's attack on uh, the copyright and everything. And uh, God bless you. Wait, before we go. Next week is, of course, the uh, American High Feast of Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. yeah. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? do a show? I don't know. I'm supposed to be up your way, maybe, Ryan, that, that, right. that weekend. Maybe we can I'm do like a Black it. Friday show. Why is I'm it got to be black? It. I don't know. That's Why what they call it. Call it Black Friday. You know, Kalish, help me out here. These people are just not okay with black it, and brown. It puts the I retail would... stores in the black. 
Yeah, yeah. I wear black all the time. So. <laughs> <There we go>. <laughs> <laughs> black is a good thing economically, James. Come on. Okay, okay. We, we, oh, we've chucked our privilege for this. Yes. <laughs> I'll allow it. Do you just keep that in your pocket for the I rundown? I do, so I can give it to the cashier and just see their re- reaction. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> we should do a poll. Do you, do you people want to hear from us on Thanksgiving, or can we can we have like some time off? <laughs> We do we do do this for free every single week. <laughs> we have time off. We're glad to, but but day off here and there wouldn't be. Bad. It'd be great. You know, you know. I was thinking. I I was driving down the road today, doing my thing, visiting job sites, and I was listening to an assortment of uh, Celtic music, and Auld Lang Sang uh, came on, mm-hmm. and I was thinking like. Oh my goodness! It what? It's already been a year since we did our New Year's Eve show, and we got to get ready for our New Year's Eve show. Right. I mean, it's coming up. It's coming up. It's coming up. The rundown turns three soon. Yes. We we we're, we're right now. We're toddlers. We're about to be terrible threes. <laughs> or, or terrible twos to trying threes. Is that how it goes? Something I don't know. like that. Yeah. Rolling threes. Curly fries, what? That's yeah, actually right? pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. <laughs> Going with three years. I know. Prospect. I know. My daughter is, my youngest daughter is three. Well, actually, no, my youngest daughter is like a month old, but they're, they're the okay, one before on, that. Brian. Three, and yeah. she's, she's a wrecking ball. <laughs> I mean, I was I was only a baby skizzy when we started, and now I'm like a full blown skizzy. It's like, oh, you're straight up, that. you're straight up, <laughs> like straight off up. the grid, <laughs> off the grid. We have the we, you know, we have the entire spectrum on on the screen right now fssp we have sspx we have ickspsp we have obsa we have i don't know what kalash is probably diocesan something fssp okay there you go all across the board esd score is just tick it upwards this this is ecumenism this is ecumenism (laughs) we are very ecumenical (laughs) well you didn't mention any studies brother what's going on Oh, no one's no one's going to own up to no, that. Okay. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is the rundown.